my son, my daughter, my children are mixed race, and I'm really proud of that. When my kids grow up and they look back at this moment and they turn to me and say, what did you do in this moment? I want to be able to give them an answer. Good morning, everyone. Uh, there's a lot of royals on oh, the air I? all over the TV. You're going to read a lot about it. It'll be even more soon. Uh, I know. Uh, the new Meghan and Harry docuseries is out, and we're getting a look at the accusations against the royal family over race and why Harry is comparing the treatment of his wife to his mother, Diana. We're going to break it all down with our team in London, how the palace is reacting. Also this morning on the global front, Russian President Vladimir Putin is now warning that nuclear risk is increasing while acknowledging that the war in Ukraine is going to, quote, take a while. Plus, a break in the case. Idaho police now searching for a white Hyundai Elantra. That is the car they think may be in connection with the college murder case, where that investigation stands this morning. But we're going to begin with this this morning, a new chilling warning from Vladimir Putin warning Russian citizens to prepare for a longer war in Ukraine and not ruling out the first use of nuclear weapons his invasion now in its 10th month with winter underway in Ukraine. Sinan's Frederick Pleitgen is live for us in Berlin this morning. Hello to you, Fred. What is Putin's message to the Russian people and to the world this morning? Yeah, that certainly things are going to be tough, that things are going to take a while, Don. You're absolutely right. This comes, obviously, as the Russia is having a lot of trouble on the battlefield. One of the things that Vladimir Putin said is that this could take a very long time, that Russia would fight with all available means at its disposal. He also said that right now there wouldn't be another mobilization of Russians to go to the war. However, of course, he didn't rule out that happening in the future. But what really raised eyebrows around the world was that Vladimir Putin was specifically asked whether he would rule out a first use of of nuclear weapons by the Russian Federation, and Vladimir Putin refused to do that. Now, he did say that Russia considers nuclear weapons as being defensive weapons, but the U.S. has already come out and said any kind of talk like this is absolutely irresponsible and goes against the rules of nuclear nonproliferation, Don. He has said things like this before. Is it all a big bluff, or we just don't know mm. now? Well, that's, that's the thing. You just really don't know. And obviously, Vladimir Putin has a huge nuclear arsenal at his disposal. One of the things, however, that we have seen is at the beginning of the war, Vladimir Putin already uh, put his nuclear forces in a heightened state of alert. Uh, he then later also threatened uh, nuclear weapons, saying that uh, other nations should realize that Russia is not bluffing. This was months into the conflict when things were already going difficult for uh, the Russians. Definitely impossible to rule out whether this is a bluff or not. But certainly you also see by the international reaction that the U.S. and its allies seem unfazed by all this and certainly are saying they are going to continue to support Ukraine, Don. Fred Pleiken, thank you very much. Now to a CNN exclusive this morning. The Biden administration is considering one of the Ukrainian military's most controversial requests potentially since Russia's invasion began. They are now asking for access to the U.S. stockpile of cluster warhead munitions, which are banned by more than 100 countries, but are being continually used by Russia. CNN's Natasha Bertrand joins me now. Natasha, what do we know about the communication of these Ukrainian requests to the U.S. government and what the U.S. government has said in response? 
Yeah, Caitlin, so the Ukrainians have been making very clear over the last several months to the Biden administration that they feel they could use the stockpile of cluster munitions that the United States has kind of gathering dust in storage at this point to great advantage on the battlefield against Russia, because, of course, Russia is using them as well to devastating effect inside Ukraine. And the Ukrainians, uh, they have said that these cluster munitions really could be a game changer for them. Now, the Biden administration uh, is not taking uh, that off the table. They are actually uh, considering that request, as they do with every other request Ukraine makes uh, for weaponry. But it's really tough at this point because Congress actually imposes limitations on the ability of the U.S. to transfer these kinds of weapons, which are uh, potentially extremely dangerous to civilians, to foreign countries. So the Biden administration does have the ability, technically, President Biden could overrule those congressional limits to send those weapons. But it's a very high bar considering how dangerous these weapons actually are. Yeah, because they're essentially these bombs that have smaller submunitions in them leading to what you said there about the concerns about where it goes. I think the question here is, why is this what the Ukrainians believe this is what they need now? Yeah, so this, this, these weapons, because they are so uh, powerful and because they have those submunitions that explode uh, over a wide area, they can potentially be very effective in targeting large concentration of tr- large concentrations of tr- Russian troops and Russian tanks. So the Ukrainians say, hey, we don't need as much normal ammunition if you give us these cluster munitions because they are, effect- they are more effective than just, you know, the regular ammunition and rockets and artillery that we are actually getting here. So their argument is, hey, the Russians are using this. Why can't we use it back at them? We're not going to use it against civilians like the Russians are. We are only going to use it against the Russian military. Caitlin. Natasha, we'll wait to see what the administration formally says on that. Thank you. We do have new developments now in the saga of former President Donald Trump and the mishandling of classified documents. Two more items marked classified have been found at the former president's storage unit in West Palm Beach, Florida. An outside firm that was hired by Trump's attorneys found these documents. And this comes after, of course, federal agents obtained hundreds of classified documents from Trump's home at Mar-a-Lago earlier this year. That's what prompted the federal judge to order Trump to take a harder look at his properties for any potential remaining classified materials. Caitlin, this is your, your reporting. What is most significant about it? There's still a lot of questions about this. We don't know how significant these documents are that they found. They have classified markings, we should note. Obviously, that is something that that May grand jury subpoena said. All of that should be returned to the government. And so what our reporting had been is that there was concern from the federal investigators here that not everything had been turned over. And, And this would seem to reinforce that, that they did have the right to be concerned about that. And there was also the question raised after the Mar-a-Lago search happened in August about other properties that Trump has. Obviously, he's got this Bedminster Club that they've now searched. He's got Trump Tower here in New York. He's got a lot of properties. And so what's notable about this is that it was the Trump legal team that hired this yeah. these individuals to go and search the documents. This is not something the Justice Department was part of. They offered for That them was to also come. interesting to me, that part that they offered and they didn't and we talk, I talked to Evan Perez, our Justice Department colleague, uh, reporter about this, um, who covers the Justice Department. He said that Justice Department investigators would not go and sign off on something like this unless they themselves are yeah. the ones conducting the so search. So that's what I was wondering. The prompt wasn't from outside or from the DOJ. It was actually from the Trump 
folks to search just to make sure that there weren't documents in, in other properties? Is but that- it's not like they just did it because they were like, let's just make sure. There yeah. is the judge here who had basically said, you need to make sure that there's nothing else. And she made that pretty clear in a message to the Trump legal team. It would be bad if there was something else in, in this investigation and you did not turn it over or we didn't know about it. Yeah. And so they searched these four properties. It's not clear. I don't think that they searched any others based on the sources that I've been speaking to. They did find these two documents. There had been some reporting that they had told the government they hadn't found anything. They actually did find these two documents. They've turned them over. The question, though, is is the significance of that and whether or not there's other stuff in other properties, I think, is the and question. storage units, yeah. by the way. Yeah. Which I should note, the Trump team is pushing back, saying Trump, it was a docu- it was a storage unit that had all these personal belongings that he did not know personally what yeah. was in there that they had really looked I was in just there. thinking about, like, lack of security at a storage yeah. facility. And lack of, like, cataloging where things are, which is, yeah. you know, why are they there? Regardless of whether or not what you think the intent here is, the question is that there are these materials that could be classified that are out there at storage yeah. units in Florida. Uh, really interesting reporting. All right, so let's bring in attorney Bradley Moss. He specializes in this kind of stuff in securities clearance law. Uh, seems like a pretty significant deal, although uh, it's important to note from Caitlin that they don't know what's in the classified documents or we don't know yet. Um, what do you make of it? Yeah, so now that we're all over the shock, total shock that Donald Trump still had classified documents sitting in another property. There are two things of note here, kind of following up on what Caitlin was saying. One was the obvious national security concern. These are documents with classification markings. We don't know the sensitivity level, but any classified uh, information is itself a national security risk to be outside uh, a secure location, sitting in just a storage facility, not in accordance with uh, security protocols for classified documents. The second issue is obviously the legal one. We know there's the ongoing grand jury proceeding. We know there's this ongoing back uh, back and forth legal fight between the Trump team and DOJ. Does this reinforce the government's view, its likelihood that it will ultimately seek an indictment here? I think this makes things worse for Donald Trump that there were other documents. So, Bradley, what is the legal jeopardy then? You talked about the larger implications here and what, you know, all of this is Mar-a-Lago under investigation now, potentially Bedminster and in the storage unit or what have you. So then what's the legal ramifications for, if any, for Trump? Sure. This ties back to two parts. One is that grand jury subpoena that was back in May. They were compelled, they were ordered to turn over all documents with classification markings. It didn't just say Mar-a-Lago. It said all documents in their possession. Mm -hmm. There's no indication that the Trump team ever even looked at this facility. Regardless of what they thought may or may not have been there, that would have been due due diligence. That would have been reasonable. They never did it. And the other part, again, This is somehow all these documents with classification markings showing up with all these other records. Trump says these were personal belongings. So what? You can't have them. It speaks to the Espionage Act provision, again, that this is the unauthorized retention of this information. Bradley, as we've made clear here, though, this is something that was carried out by the Trump team. Trump's attorneys hired these people to do these searches. What does it say to you that this isn't something where the Justice Department felt they had probable cause and could get a search warrant for Bedminster, for Trump Tower, for these storage units in Florida? 
Yeah, so I saw that, and my view is that the Justice Department probably was sitting there contemplating, considering the idea of going back to it. They likely were pushing the judge to say, look, we don't want him to have to make another spectacle of this. This was coming all up. Um, these proceedings were going on during the course of the final weeks and days of the election. They obviously had limits on what they could do. They didn't want another media spectacle. And the judge pushed on the Trump team, said, you have got, as a matter of national security, first and foremost, you've got to make sure there's nothing else out there. You can't be having this stuff sitting in these facilities. And if you don't do this properly, that's likely the government's going to come back to me and say, we're going to have to go with another search warrant and that won't be good for you. So the Trump team finally did something reasonable here and finally did a proper mm. search of all properties that we know of so far. <laughs> but look how long it's taken. Yeah. So long. Bradley. Yeah. Bradley Moss, thank, thank you, you very much. Caitlin, great Appreciate reporting. Uh, we'll keep following that. The new Harry and Meghan Netflix docuseries revealing new details about their relationship, what really happened behind the scenes and the un- Relentless British media. This is about duty and service. I feel as though being part of this family, it is my duty to uncover this exploitation and bribery that happens within our media. No one knows the full truth. Um, we know the full truth. The institution knows the full truth and the media know the full truth because they've been in on it. Harry went on to discuss his mother's death and the harassment she faced. Back in my mom's day, is, it was physical harassment. You know, cameras in your face, following you, chasing you. The harassment really exists more online now. Once the photographs are out and the stories then put next to it, then comes the social media harassment. He also opened up about the difficulties of watching Megan go through negative media coverage. To see another woman in my life who I love go through this feeding frenzy, that's hard. It is basically the hunter versus the prey. All right, let's go to London now. CNN's Max Foster, Kate Williams, and British journalist and broadcaster Badisha Mamada. Um, they all join us this morning. Good morning to you. You guys have been covering this overnight. We have been watching your coverage. I woke up to it. Um, the biggest takeaways, Max Foster? Well, no great bombshell, but uh, a fleshing out, if you like, of why the couple was so unhappy in the institution. So Harry talks about this temptation of men in the family to marry women who would fit in. Um, Diana refused to fit in, he says, and Meghan refused to fit in. He talks about the lack of support, lack of protection, effectively, in the palace system. So this onslaught of media harassment that his wife suffered, uh, the family effectively said, well, our wives had to suffer through it. Uh, what's different about your girlfriend? And he responded saying, well, race is the difference. He refused to accept this status quo, almost a conspiracy, he would describe it as, between the palace and the royal correspondence to push out a narrative which didn't necessarily work for Harry and Meghan. So they just left the system. That's ultimately why they uh, left the UK. Padisha, it had been thought that there would be more revelations, i.e. the Oprah interview, you know, as it related to, to race. Are there any big revelations on this front in, in, so far in what you've seen? Interestingly, across multiple episodes, there are no big revelations. I was waiting for a, a sharp left turn of something absolutely shocking and scandalous. This is not that. This is a beautifully produced multiple episodes series in which there is an overwhelming sense of being misunderstood, 
of desperately and continually and in fact repeatedly saying what you think is the real story is not the real story. This is the real story. Please just understand how we feel. I'm not sure that we're going to learn very much from it, except that they are asking us to make a leap of empathy, to try to understand what it's been like. There is such a sensation of, we have been betrayed. I wish you could understand us. We are not just these images. It's mm -hmm. us, the couple, versus the media, versus the royal family. And they, capital they, are all in on it against us. Kate, I think back to that moment when they were overseas and uh, Megan was asked by that reporter, are you OK? And she said, I'm, I'm not OK. And it seems like this gives us more of a lens into that. Yes, just as Badisha was saying there, this is really a portrait of suffering, a portrait of Harry and Meghan, and particularly Meghan, suffering within the royal family, suffering so from what happens to women when they marry into the royal family. As Harry said, women who marry into the royal family, they have a bad time. There's sexism. And with Meghan, of course, there was racism. She says very explicitly, I was never treated as a black woman until I came to Britain. And, and the, the tabloids, the media, the racism was out of control. And there's really a lot here about in episode three about the uh, history of Britain with slavery, the history of Britain in terms of, uh, you know, uh, racist uh, sufferings of people who, people, black people within this country. And really, I think this is being very explicit here. They're very, very explicit about the media, about how much suffering they created, but also about the royal family. Um, Harry says that he he was told by the members of the royal family that she was an American actress. It wouldn't last. He said the fact that she was an actress, that these are his words, clouded their judgment. So they are really saying that they were left to uh, abandoned without support. Meghan had no support. There was racism. There was suffering. And just as uh, Max and Badisha were saying, there were no big revelations necessarily. But I think we are going to see some next week, particularly in what we've seen in the trailers, this suggestion that actually members of the royal household were planting stories against mm. them. Now, that will probably come in the next week, but certainly that is a big bombshell. Well, and Max, on that front, I imagine the royal family was probably bracing for this to come out. They're obviously going to watch to see what, what is said. What are you hearing from your sources about how they're prepared to respond to this new docuseries? Well, this is, this is it, isn't it? So you've got the, the Sussexes who feel that um, big claims in the media, misinformation, as they call it, should be called out every time. And then the palace system, which is to rise above that and not to respond to everything in the media. We've basically got a clash of communication strategies here. Right. I think the palace are responding more these days, as they did to the race allegations <laughs> uh, last week. Uh, under uh, King Charles. I don't think there's much here for them to respond to, but behind the scenes, the word balance has been said to me, which is if there are major allegations, there does need to be balance there. So I think if there are some bombshells next week, as Kate su suspects there will be, and I do as well, then there will be some comment for I the next three. I can't help but, uh, Badisha, I mean, look, let's be honest. If everyone was expecting this, all these big revelations and what is it going to, it seems like a big PR stunt for Netflix because everyone is talking about it, but yet there's, there are no new revelations. Well, and for Harry and Meghan. Yeah, and for Harry and Meghan, who, I mean, it kind of feels like the Kardashianification, if that's a word, <laughs> of I think you just the royals. I think I just made that, I mean, a, a new word, but I mean, it feels like the sort of reality TV series sort of what's happening with the royal family. I'm not sure how that's going to play. A lot of people may be interested in it, but I, I think you get my point here. 
I love that word. And if we haven't already uh, coined that phrase, then we absolutely have to. The Kardashification of the royals. In fact, Harry and Meghan say that themselves in this series. They say that their engagement announcement was an orchestrated reality show. Mm -hmm. And you're absolutely right. In fact, Max was right, too, because this is about the American style versus the British style. Harry and Meghan are about speaking your truth. Mm -hmm. bringing it front and center, talking about racism, talking about mental health challenges, even talking about whether or not your father, your father-in-law actually betrayed you, speaking about the process of becoming famous. Now, the British style is put up and shut up, stiff upper lip, say nothing unless forced. And so you have the clash of the new world and the old world. And that's exactly why both sides are now suspicious of each other. Mm-hmm. And that's the sense you get throughout this entire series. We have a new word added to the lexicon. <laughs> but thank you all really Thanks, for your analysis, Badisha, Max, and Kate. Well, investigators have zeroed in this morning on two possible motives for that targeted power grid attack in North Carolina, and both do center on extremist behavior. And what could be the first big break in that investigation where mystery has remained into the murders of those four University of Idaho students? We have more on that next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Well, this morning, the lights are finally back on, thank goodness, in Moore County, North Carolina. This follows that targeted attack on those two power stations that left them in the dark for days. Multiple law enforcement sources tell CNN that investigators still, though, don't have a motive for this gun attack. They are zeroing in on two possible threads centered around extremist behavior, including online threats encouraging attacks on critical infrastructure, also a series of recent disruptions at LGBTQ events by domestic extremists across the country. So the FBI has been on the scene all week and released this poster asking the public to come forward with any information. Ahead, we'll take you live to Moore County. Also this morning, police in Moscow, Idaho, say that they're looking for a car that was spotted near that home where the four University of Idaho students were found stabbed to death It's a white 2011-2013, potentially, Hyundai Elantra. The license plate number is unknown, but police say that people in the car might have critical information to what happened that evening. It's the first major development that we've actually gotten in this investigation after the murders happened last month. Authorities are now also removing the students' belongings from the home. They say that those items are no longer needed for the investigation. We're going to be getting those items back to the families. Um, It's time for us to um, get those things back that really mean something to those families and hopefully to help with some of their healing. Authorities say those items will be moved to a secure location until their families can collect them. Meanwhile, the House is still considered a crime scene. When the GOP takes control of the House, the party is already warning about investigations into the Biden administration. Republican Congressman James Comer is going to join us to discuss what to expect. He's next. Plus this. I remember when I was doing Hunger Games, nobody had ever put a woman in the lead of an action movie. Jennifer Lawrence facing some criticism for that comment, the response she received on social media ahead.
tell me that's not a beautiful sunrise there. It's a very busy morning, and welcome back to CNN This Morning, everyone. Here's what's coming up. Up next, Congressman James Comer will join us as the party is already warning about investigations into the Biden administration. We're going to discuss that. Jennifer Lawrence drawing criticism over a comment about female action heroes. What did she say that lit up the Internet, plus the New York Times bracing for a major walkout that they haven't seen in decades? What is behind the move? Caitlin? And with the Republicans set to take control of the House next year, they are going to get control of the chamber's committee assignments. And with that new power, investigative power, Republicans say that a key priority is going to be launching investigations. Their list is long. It includes everything from big tech and the border to COVID origins and funding with Ukraine and the Biden family. So joining us now is James Comer, the ranking member and soon to be chairman of the House Oversight Committee. Good morning and thank you for joining us. At least I want to start about your investigative priorities. I know you have a lot of them. And so we want to talk about those pursuits in a moment. But first, I want to ask you about the news overnight that at least two more documents with classified markings were found during a search of a storage site that belonged to former President Trump. Are you concerned that Mar-a-Lago is not the only place that the former president kept classified material? Well, as you know, the Oversight Committee has jurisdiction over the National Archives. Uh, we used to have a very close relationship with them. Uh, ever since the raid of Mar Largo, we've requested information and haven't received anything. They keep referring us to the Department of Justice. So I really don't know enough to comment on it. Uh, obviously, if you're uh, not uh, properly handling classified material, that, that would be a concern. And a concern that he's not also complying with a subpoena, it seems like, that said all that material should be returned to the National Archives, to the federal government, right? Well, from what I read, I think his people found the documents and notified the archives or, or whomever. So, you know, I don't want to, certainly not going to defend uh, the indefensible or anything, but at the end of the day, uh, obviously anyone in Congress should be concerned about uh, the storage of, of classified documents. But it is frustrating for me uh, to have jurisdiction over the National Archives, and, and I have no idea what type of documents we're talking about. You know, classified can be a wide range of uh, variations, so w- we don't know. Uh, just on the surface of things, it, it would obviously be concerning. You condemned the former president's dinner with a prominent anti-Semite. You know, this week he suggested terminating the Constitution. This week his candidate in Georgia lost decisively. Putting all of those things together over the last several weeks, do you still think that he's the right leader for the Republican Party? Look, I I believe that we have a very deep bench in the Republican Party. the former president's very popular in my home state of Kentucky, obviously. Uh, I think he did a, a lot of good things, a lot of good policies during his four years. But uh, at the end of the day, we're going to have a primary. There are a lot of candidates that have expressed an interest. It's very early. So uh, I think it's really too early to speculate on who will be the, the front runner or who will be the, the Republican nominee in 2024. OK, so you're not prepared to say that you'll endorse him for president or anything like that. No, I, I'm, I'm staying out of the presidential election. We're focused on uh, taking over the oversight committee. We have no shortage of oversight demands in this building. So uh, that, that's going to be my focus over the next few months. Yeah, and you are about to become the chairman. I know, of course, you were selected yesterday officially. You have said that you want to investigate as many as 40 to 50 different topics. What are your top three priorities, though? Mm-hmm. Well, we're very concerned about spending. Obviously, uh, Congress over the last three years, so that would span two administrations, in the name of COVID, uh, we've had record spending. 
And unfortunately, we haven't had a whole lot of guardrails on a lot of the COVID money, uh, whether it be the state and local money, whether it be the PPP loan program, uh, and certainly the unemployment insurance program. So we have a lot of reports of waste, fraud, and abuse. Uh, we know uh, some specific examples. We've been digging uh, while we were in the minority. Uh, we certainly now in January will have uh, a lot more authority to be able to obtain information. So I believe our first hearing will be about uh, COVID funds. Uh, we certainly want to try to identify any waste and if there's any possibility to claw it back. We want to do that, so that's going to be a priority. We're concerned about the southern border. We believe that uh, it's a disgrace, honestly, what's happening at the southern border. We need to secure that southern border, and we've been uh, communicating with whistleblowers about the southern border, so that's obviously going to be a priority, too. But as I've said before, we, we have the staff and the bandwidth to do between 40 and, and 50 different probes and investigations, and we plan on uh, ramping up in January and trying to get to that point. What would you say is your third top priority? Well, the third top priority, obviously, uh, we're very concerned about uh, what we see in the news with respect to the Biden family influence peddling. This is something that we're certainly uh, going to look into. Uh, we believe that, uh, you know, that we have a lot of problems uh, with respect to what the, the president has, has said with respect to his knowledge of his family's, what I would consider influence peddling. Uh, he said during the presidential campaign he had no knowledge. We now know that that's not true. Uh, so we're going to look into that and see what the, what the extent of his involvement with uh, the what I would consider influence peddling with our adversaries in, in China and Russia. So that's something that obviously is going to be in the news a lot. But again, we're going to be a very substantive committee and we're focused on uh, waste, fraud, abuse and mismanagement in the federal government. What do you expect to come of an investigation like the one that you just referenced? You, well, with respect to, to the Bidens, you know, we, we have a problem that I think is only going to get worse, and it's been a problem in, honestly, the, the last two administrations. We need to know exactly what's legal and what's not legal with respect to family members of uh, high-level political uh, offices. We need to know uh, a lot more about uh, existing businesses. Uh, if you're president and you run, uh, you have a big business empire that's doing business all over the world, uh, you become president, uh, we probably need more disclosure laws. So I think at the end of the investigation into the, uh, the Biden influence peddling, I think that there's a, a possibility for a bipartisan legislative fix. We need to know exactly what is legal and what is not legal. And we certainly need to increase the disclosure laws for immediate family members of, uh, of high level uh, political officers. Well, people are going to want to see evidence about essentially everything you just laid out there, what you say you believe is influence peddling. People are going to want to see what that actually looks like. I think one thing that I've heard even from, you know, your fellow Republicans is questions about credibility of these investigations mm -hmm. and what that's going to look like. You said you want to bring credibility back to the House Oversight Committee. You clearly don't think it's there. But with this slim majority and with some of the Republicans who have been considered to be on the Oversight Committee, how do you maintain credibility in these investigations? How do you keep them focused on things like when it comes to PPP loans, things that people really mm -hmm. care about, and differentiating that between, you know, what's popular on Twitter with some of your fellow Republican colleagues? Yeah, and that's a problem with both parties. We have the squad on the Oversight Committee as well on the Democrat side. I think uh, you would, if you interviewed uh, 
Jamie Raskins or Carolyn Maloney or anyone they would uh, probably be able to answer the same question with the same types of problems that some of their members have. But I've told everyone on the committee, everyone who uh, aspires to be on the committee, and again, for the last two Congresses, the House Oversight Committee has been the number one most requested committee by the incoming freshman class. So uh, I'm, I'm very proud of that. But at the end of the day, I've said we're going to be a very substantive committee. Uh, there are things that we're going to do that will be front and center in the media. And there are a lot of things we're going to do that, uh, unfortunately, no one in the press will ever cover that I would argue is a lot more substantive than the stuff that the press will cover. So uh, I think everyone knows that uh, I have a lot of goals and objectives. And you're exactly right. The, the reputation of congressional oversight uh, is not good. There's not a lot of credibility. Uh, among uh, the media and among the American people in congressional oversight. That I blame both parties for that. I hope to change that. And we've got a, a, big, uh, a big order to try to be able to accomplish that. But I do think that you know, there's no shortage of demand for oversight and accountability in the federal government. That's a bipartisan issue. And certainly, uh, you know, we'll have hearings that, that may tend to uh, lean into the, the partisan side of things on both sides of the aisle. But uh, unlike the January 6th committee, the House Oversight Committee is going to have a, a makeup of you know, exactly who uh, Hakeem Jeffries wants and exactly who uh, uh, Kevin McCarthy wants. So uh, I think we're going to do a good job. We've set some lofty goals, and, and I think the country needs a strong oversight committee that looks into waste, fraud, and abuse. So uh, hopefully we'll be able to do that. We'll look to see what that committee does as you are in charge. Congressman James Comer, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. Great interview. Uh, a lot of headlines. Okay, so the Supreme Court really split after oral arguments yesterday on a really significant case. It could completely change how elections in this country are decided. Details ahead. And what's this all about? Actress Jennifer Lawrence getting flack for suggesting that she was the first female action star when she appeared in the Hunger Games films. Hmm. Love those films. <laughs> All right, time now for some weather. Look at that. Heavy rain and snow hitting some western states, especially in the Colorado Rockies where avalanche warnings are in place. Straight now to our meteorologist, Chad Myers, in the CNN Severe Weather Center. Hello, sir. How much snow are, is expected in the Rockies? You know, Don, in the Sierra, we could see eight feet. In the Rockies, Colorado, maybe three feet. I have a friend right now in a car heading up the hill on I-70 going skiing today. But that's another story. Uh, Sunday is when the real big snow comes in. There's some rain right now across parts of the southeast, a wet commute for places like St. Louis. But really, the storm comes in and it will be very beneficial. Cascades, Sierra, into the Rockies, going to get significant snow that will eventually melt in the spring and maybe, hopefully, Fill up some reservoirs. There you go. Two to three feet already and more to come by the end of the weekend because that's when the next storm system comes in. Temperatures are going to be mild in the cities, but certainly cold enough for snow in the mountains, and they'll take it. Chad, you said eight feet, not eight inches. Eight feet? Eight feet. Woo! I mean, not, not, not Tahoe proper, but in the mountains like Heavenly, yeah. Oh, wow. All right. Good skiing, I guess. Thank you, Chad. <laughs> yeah, Appreciate <buddy>. it. <laughs> you bet. Bobby. All right. This morning, Oscar-winning actress Jennifer Lawrence is facing some backlash on social media for suggesting that she was the first woman to lead in an action movie when she starred in The Hunger Games. I remember when I was doing Hunger Games, nobody had ever put a woman in the lead of an action movie yeah. because it wouldn't work. We were told girls and boys can both identify with a male lead, but yeah. boys cannot identify with a female lead. 
So th that statement unleashed a lot of uh, criticism online. People pointed to examples of where she was wrong, like Sigourney Weaver in the Alien series, also Lynn Hamilton in the Terminator movies, and Pam Grier in the films like Foxy Brown. She herself was often cited as the first female action movie star. All those performances before Jennifer Lawrence was uh, was born. Since she was born, the list goes on. Michelle Yeoh in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and other films. Uh, Mila Djokovic and Michelle Rodriguez in Resident Evil franchise. Uma Thurman in Kill Bill. Angelina Jolie in Laura Croft, Tomb Raider. Oof. Yeah, I do not think she made I think people make mistakes all the time. I'm not getting into it. <laughs> I, do, I do have to say I do love from the, the black exploitation movies from the 70s with Pam Greer with the big afro. Mm -hmm. and All and great films, Christy all great love actresses. on the TV. Yeah, and listen, it wasn't on the big screen, but um, remember Linda Carter mm. in Wonder Woman. I loved those mm. when I was a kid. So. Where's your Wonder Woman t-shirt? I should have worn it today. should have worn it today. Well, maybe it's under. It's under. She's wearing it under. Or tomorrow. Okay, perfect. More than 1,000 New York Times union members are preparing to go on strike today. What they're demanding next. Plus, there's a new change impacting your money this morning, specifically when it comes to Venmo. Well, something really great and inspiring is happening this Sunday night. You'll want to join our Anderson Cooper and Kelly Ripa to celebrate some of the most extraordinary people in the world who you probably haven't heard of, people that are uh, committed to making this world a better place. Here's a clip of CNN Heroes. Sunday. It's the time of year to be inspired and honor some of humanity's best. We have found homes for almost 3,000 dogs. Our community engagement center used to be the community drug house. I want my grandchildren to have it better than what I have it today. It has always wanted to serve other people. Human suffering has no borders. People are people, and love is love. Join Anderson Cooper and Kelly Ripa live as they present the 2022 Hero of the Year. Join me in honoring CNN Hero of the Year. CNN Heroes, an all-star tribute, Sunday at 8. Can't wait for that on Sunday. But this morning in sports, a curious cat stole the spotlight during the World Cup news conference. And CNN's Andy Schultz is joining us now. Andy, people really were not happy about what happened to the cat and how it was treated. <laughs> yeah, and Kayla, I spoke with our colleague Don Riddell, who's there in Doha covering the World Cup for us. He said uh, there's stray cats everywhere and they're pretty friendly. Well, one of those cats decided to jump on the table during Brazilian star Vinicius Jr.'s news conference. He thought it was rather funny. His translator, though, decided to grab the cat and just chunk it off the table. Now, luckily, cats always land on their feet, but uh, the translator receiving some criticism because, well, probably could have been a little bit nicer to that cat. All right, elsewhere in the NBA last night, we had a thrilling finish to the Jazz and Warriors. Golden State was up by four with just 13.3 seconds left. Well, Utah's Malik Beasley is going to hit a three right here to cut the lead to one. Then after a timeout on the inbound, Utah's Nikhil Alexander-Walker steals the ball away from Jordan Poole. They get the ball up to Simone Fontecchio for the dunk in the final seconds. The Warriors 
losing heartbreaking fashion to the Jazz, 124 to 123. And Caitlin, uh, the Jazz had a record of 1 and 718 over the last 25 seasons when they were down by four or more with under 10 seconds to go. So there you nothing, go. That's how improbable that win was. <laughs> nothing like a chaotic ending to the NBA season there. And I'm not down with that cat thing. That was a little rough. You would have chunked it too, Don? You no, 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 no. It's a little rough. I, look, I'm, I'm very animal friendly here. And he could have. Uh, it's okay for him to get him off the table. But just, just three just little pooches in. We yeah. can't even keep track shoo of it. how many dogs. You don't need to do that. <laughs> I know. I'm like, well, who, who are you? I wake up in the morning. I'm like, now what dog is this? multiplied. <laughs> All right, Andy Schultz, thanks so much. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Andy. All right, this could be the first big development in that investigation into the murders of the four University of Idaho students. What we're learning ahead and what police are now looking for. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Orchestrated reality show. Yeah. But it was, you know, rehearsed. So we did the thing out with the press, and then we went right inside, took the coat off, sat down, and did the interview. So it was all in that same moment. Orchestrated reality show. That's what she's saying about what's happening. Good morning, everyone. We're so glad that you're here. We're talking about, obviously, that was Meghan Markle. And we're talking about her and Prince Harry. They're talking about race, the royal family, and their comparisons to Diana. What did we learn? This is in this new Netflix series. What did we learn? Is Buckingham Palace responding live for you in London this morning? And also, it could be the first major development, something these families have really been seeking. The case of those four murdered University of Idaho students. Investigators are now looking for a car that was spotted near the home where they were killed that could help provide more information. We also know this morning that investigators are zeroing in on two possible motives centered around extremist behavior in that power grid attack in North Carolina. And new CNN reporting on the team that was hired by Trump's attorneys and found two more documents marked as classified inside a storage unit in Florida that has raised new questions about where all its documents the former president might be keeping. Trump's former acting chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, will weigh in next. But first, this this morning, a possible new clue in the murders of four University of Idaho students. What in the world is going on there? Police in Moscow Moscow say that they are looking for a 2011 to 2013 white Hyundai Elantra and whomever was inside of it on the night the students were killed, they don't have a license plate number, but they say it was spotted near the home where the victims were stabbed to death. It is the first major development in the investigation since the November 13th murders. This is a very active case. We're doing a lot of work. Uh, granted, not a lot of not a lot of it that can be seen in public, uh, but behind the scenes, there's a lot of people working on this case, and we're going to continue. Authorities are also now removing the students' belongings from the home. They say that those items are no longer needed for the investigation. We're going to be getting that, those items back to the families. Um, it's time for us to um, get those things back that really mean something to those families and hopefully to help with some of their healing. The items will be moved to a secure location until families can collect them. Meanwhile, the house is still considered a crime scene. Power has been resp- restored to some grateful residents in Moore County, North Carolina this morning. After those two attacks on the power substations over the weekend, 
Thousands of people spent days in the dark in what officials say they do believe was a targeted gun attack. Multiple law enforcement sources now telling CNN investigators are zeroing in on two possible motives centered around extremist behavior. CNN's Whitney Wilde is live in Moore County, North Carolina. Whitney, what can you tell us about what they believe this motive could be? Well, Caitlin, they haven't definitively said, but they're looking at two threads. And the first thread is calls on the Internet uh, among domestic violent extremists who are encouraging attacks on critical infrastructure. So that is something that law enforcement is looking into. And the second thread here uh, involves uh, reviewing a series of uh, disruptions to LGBTQ events around the country. What we know is that at 7 p.m., just as the power went out here, there was there was a drag show scheduled in Moore County. Law enforcement looking very closely at the, the correlation of the timing there, that there was this drag show that was supposed to take place at 7 p.m., that the power was cut shortly after that, the attack happening uh, it, somewhere pretty close to that 7 p.m. Uh, time frame when the power shut off. So that's what law enforcement is looking into, although they haven't, again, been able to definitively connect those two events. Meanwhile, law enforcement here is working around the clock. The FBI has been on scene all week at this location where I am in Carthage, North Carolina. That's where one of those substations uh, was attacked on Saturday. Law enforcement also appealing to the public, the FBI putting out a poster, hoping that someone will remember something, that someone will come forward. Law enforcement trying to encourage that. Now, state officials, local officials have upped a reward for information leading to the arrest of whoever did this. That reward, Caitlin, now $75,000. Yeah, we'll be watching to see what these developments are. Whitney Wild, thank you. Well, this morning, President Biden is renewing his call for an assault weapons ban, despite the pretty slim chance of one passing in Congress right now. He spoke at a two-hour candlelight vigil for victims of gun violence, and he called a ban on military-style weapons, quote, common sense. He also promised that his work was far from done. We've seen you turn pain into purpose. Together, we made some important progress. Most significant gun law passed in 30 years, but still not enough. Still not enough. All right, MJ Lee joins us this morning from the White House. MJ, good morning to you. I mean, in the past few weeks, we've heard him, the president, the White House, talking about this more. Is there a belief that they think something could happen in the near term in this Congress and the lame duck? You know, Poppy, I think last night was a great reminder that when we hear President Biden giving a speech calling for legislative action, he's not necessarily always doing it because he thinks there's a good chance that this can happen. Look, President Biden and White House officials know very well just how difficult it would be for Congress to get through an assault weapons ban. You know, they couldn't do it the last two years when Democrats controlled Congress. They know that it is going to be nearly impossible when they don't control both chambers uh, come next Congress. But the president has been clear that he is going to continue talking about this issue and calling for an assault weapons ban because uh, the gun safety bill that he did sign into law earlier this year, he simply just sees as not being enough. So, uh, MJ, another thing atop the president's mind, avoiding a government shutdown. What are you hearing? Yeah, let me just break this down for you. So December 16th, that is the date that you want to circle on your calendar. That is when government funding runs out. And one of several things needs to happen in order for the government to not shut down. Uh, Congress needs to pass a spending bill. That's what uh, normal Congress government uh, behavior would be. Uh, or it can pass a short-term continuing resolution. That's a stopgap measure. Or a longer-term CR uh, for about a year, for example. Now, what does the White House want? They want Congress to pass a spending bill. They are saying 
saying even as of yesterday, there is plenty of time to get it done. Maybe not a lot of time, but they can get this done. There is recognition that a short-term stopgap measure might be necessary just to buy Congress a little bit more time. But the one thing I can tell you that the White House does not want is the one-year CR. They are saying that would have disastrous consequences for key areas of funding. Uh, and then the last thing I will tell you is that any talk of a government shutdown, at least in the building behind me, they are just not even contemplating that right now. That is how unacceptable it is uh, to White House officials. And I will tell you there's a lot of lobbying going on right now on Capitol Hill by White House officials, and that is only going to ramp up as we get closer to that deadline of next Friday. MJ Lee, live for us at the White House as the sun is coming up. Thank you very much for that. So let's talk about this new twist in the Trump Mar-a-Lago classified documents saga. Two documents with classified markings were found in a Florida storage unit. A team hired by the former president's lawyers found them during a search. Those documents were handed over to the FBI. A source says no other documents with classified markings were found. So for more on this, we're joined now by the former acting White House chief of staff in the Trump administration, Mick Mulvaney. Thank you for joining us, Mr. Mulvaney. I appreciate it. We, as they say, we have a long way to go and a short time to get there. I got a lot to get through you this morning, so I appreciate you joining us. More classified documents. Was it irresponsible for the former president to have classified information sitting in a Florida storage unit? Sure. Yes and no. And thanks, Don, for having me, as always. Um, it's probably, it shouldn't be there in the first place. That's not the right place for classified documents. Um, but it's just the most recent in a string of mishandling of documents. There's no question about that. Again, I put this aside mostly to incompetence by staff than something sort of underhanded stealing documents and selling them overseas. I don't think anybody's actually seriously uh, offering that right now. On the, on the other side of the ledgers, at least this stuff was found by the Trump team, by his lawyers, and turned over, which is the proper way to handle it. It doesn't fix things. It doesn't sort of excuse the, the misdeed on the, on the front end, but at least that part of the process seems to be working well. Like, again, add this to a long litany of ways that the move out of Washington, D.C. at the end of the Trump administration and into Mar-a-Lago was mishandled by the Trump team. To follow, should he face consequences for failing to turn over documents when the National Archives ask, for, ask him the first time or holding classified documents now that he is not president. I mean, he was president, he did, the documents are there. Most citizens cannot claim ignorance of the law. Why should he be different? Should he face consequences? He shouldn't be uh, treated any different. Everyone should be treated. And the penalty should be commensurate with the type of documents. Keep in mind, we heard a rumor early on that these were nuclear codes. Clearly, that's not the case. So we just need to make sure that the penalty is commensurate with the actual offense. That being said, so often, Don, you know, and I both know that it's it's often the cover-up and not the crime that gets people in trouble. It's not the, necessarily the taking of documents, but perhaps the certifying to the court or to the, the, to, to the FBI that all the documents have been returned. That could be more problematic for the Trump team as you go forward. So again, I think this is going through the proper procedures. It's being investigated by the FBI in the right fashion. Um, and th things seem to be moving in the direction they would with any other citizen. Let's talk about now the fallout from the midterm, shall we? Republicans just lost a crucial Senate seat in, in Georgia. I'm sure you're very aware of that. A total of 14 candidates handpicked by Trump lost their elections. Was Trump the problem? Was he a problem for Republicans in the midterms? 
He was a problem in a couple different places. I think more than anything in picking those candidates, Trump picked and 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 selected and had was a proxy for some really really bad candidates and people who had not run for office before. It's not easy to run for Senate. It's not easy to run for governor. It's not easy to run for Congress. Um, that being said, he also wasn't helpful to them in the general elections. He was able to get Herschel Walker, for example, across the line relatively easily in a primary in Georgia because Donald Trump still has tremendous sway amongst Republican primary voters. But he wasn't able to get Herschel Walker across the line with a general electorate in Georgia, which sends the message that Donald Trump is still weak um, with swing voters in swing states. He lost Georgia in 2020. The Republicans lost two Senate races there in 2020, and now they've lost yet another Senate race there in 2022, at the same time that statewide Republicans who are not um, being supported by Donald Trump, or at least uh, recruited by Donald Trump, are doing extraordinarily well. So it does expose a weakness that Donald Trump has in swing states that he's going to need to address if he needs to be taken seriously in 2024. Well, the GOP is going to have to address it because you make a distinction. You said between primary voters and general election voters and swing voters. That's a problem then for the GOP if you have a candidate who's not viable. So my question is, is he the right person to be at the top of the ticket going forward for the GOP nationwide? I think there's a growing group of Republicans, myself included. Listen, there's always been a group of Republicans who can't stand Donald Trump. And so the fact they don't like him now or they don't think he's the best candidate in 2024 really doesn't change anything. It doesn't move the needle. But there's a growing group of Republicans that supported Donald Trump in 16, supported him in 2020, and like myself, worked in him, with him in the administration, who think that he's actually our weakest candidate in 2024. He's the one most likely to lose because if he runs in 2024 as the Republican nominee, the, that election becomes a, a referendum on Donald Trump, either vote for Donald Trump or against Donald Trump. He lost that election under that sort of structure in 2020, and it showed no ability to sort of change that, that dynamic going into 2024. I believe that if he is the Republican nominee, he stands just as much chance of losing two years from now as he did two years ago. Do you think he will be? I think the, odd, the smart money is that he will be the Republican nominee just because while he can be beaten in a one-on-one in -on -one race, he's going to pull about 35, 40 percent of the Republican primary voter regardless of what happens. If he runs against one person, he loses with 35 percent. If he runs against five, he wins with 35 percent. And as you know, most of the states, Republican states, are winner-take-all or some variation on that. You can win the nomination without winning a majority of the Republican okay. primary vote. So. I think the smart money is that he is the nominee. Do you think he should be the nominee? Well, no, because I think, as I've mentioned before, I think okay. he's the weakest candidate okay, that we I have. Got we've, got a really strong, we've got a really strong bench of Republicans who I think could win in 2024. I think Donald Trump could easily lose. If he is, will you support him? Uh, no, I'm going to support other folks in the primary. There's no question about that. And I think the time of there's a lot of Republicans who are just tired of explaining to people why they supported Donald Trump. We were OK with it when the policies were really good. We're getting tired of supporting why he's having dinner with white supremacists, why we're supporting him while his companies are being uh, convicted of crimes and so forth. The, the baggage is getting heavier and heavier for more voters who are looking for other options. You're answering like three questions that I have ahead for you. So I'm glad that you mentioned all of that. So given having said that, he called to terminate the Constitution, you believe, I assume, that that should disqualify him? I don't want to put words in your mouth. Again, disqualify is a strong word, and it was a long tweet, but that was stupid. It, it just was. That's the kind of thing that, that an undisciplined candidate says, and it just adds to that long litany of reason that many people, myself included, are looking for better options in the Republican Party in 2024. We're tired of defending that kind of activity. Okay, so you're reading ahead uh, in the textbook here, so let's bring it, let's talk more about it. Former president has spent the last few weeks associating with people 
on the fringes, including posing for photos with a prominent QAnon conspiracy theorist who believes that Trump is dismantling the deep state to end the cabal of, uh, cabal of sex traffickers, plus his dinner with the, the Hitler sympathizer Kanye West and Holocaust denier Nick Fuentes. Is this who a Republican leader should be hanging out with, the leader of the Republican Party right now? No, and there's all sorts of ways to, to, to explain it away if you wanted to, or if it was a one-off kind of occasion. My guess is he didn't know who Nick Fuentes was, the white supremacist. And I understand the fundraiser at Mar-a-Lago was a money to raise, was a fundraiser to raise money to combat sex, uh, human trafficking. Those are, that, that's, that's a defensible thing. So there's another side to the story if this was a one-off type of thing. It could also be explained on bad staff work if this was a one-off type of thing. But it seems to happen with President Trump more and more. Um, he needs to take the position more seriously. He's a candidate for, for president right now. He shouldn't be making this kind of mistakes. And as I mentioned, all it does is divide his base. It doesn't add anybody to, to, to his voting base. There's nobody in the country who said, you know what, I wasn't supporting Donald Trump, but since he had dinner with a white supremacist, I think I'm on his team now. That's not how this works. He is slowly eroding his base. Uh, and folks are, are looking for other options within the Republican Party. Well, you said it's bad for his base, but it's also bad for the Republican Party, because then the Republican Party well, it's bad has for everybody. It's, it's, it it's bad for the country to have any, any famous politician to say, "I think we should throw out the Constitution." Of course, but it puts the Republican Party, Nick. With all due respect, it puts the Republican Party in a bad position because then you may have, as you well admit, someone who is running for president on the Republican side who has done all of these things and who is sympathizing uh, with anti-Semites and such. It does put the Republican Party in a very tenuous and odd position. So what sure then does, do you it, do? It, what does the party do? It, 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 well, you can't kick him out, obviously. And it weighed on the party in the midterms, right? You can talk to members of Congress in Florida, for example, who said how wonderful it was to have, to have Ron DeSantis at the top of the ticket. And now he actually brought votes for Republicans in other office. Then you talk to Republicans nationwide who say what a drag it was to have Donald Trump at the top of their ticket and how they, they their voting base eroded because of that. So, no, he's become a weight on the party nationwide. Again, come back to the same theme here. Republicans are looking for other people and they're looking for other people for the right reasons. All right. Mick Mulvaney, thank you for your time this morning. I appreciate it. London, as a matter of fact. Wow. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Tom. Poppy. All right. This morning, more than a thousand members of the New York Times Union are on strike. Uh, the Guild saying this in part, this is their letter, quote, we are ready to work for as long as it took, but to reach a fair deal. But management walked away from the table. We know what we're worth. This after more than a year and a half of stalled contract negotiations with their management. Let's bring in CNN media analyst and access reporter Sarah Fisher. I was just reading Sarah through their, their demands here, um, and they're asking for what they deem to be fair wages, uh, insure a health care fund, uh, no company cuts to their retirement benefits, uh, remote work policy, this is probably one of the big stickers, and per a performance rating system with safeguards against bias that they've uncovered. There is a lot here unresolved. Where does this go? 
Well, I think ultimately they are going to reach a point where there is a contract, but I think it's going to take a few more months. It's been already over a year and a half, as you mentioned, and I think both sides are still not quite ready yet to back down. But I think they've been making some progress on the wage increases. One of the big sticking points was that they didn't want their salary increases to be pegged to the lowest band. They wanted it to be pegged to their own performance. The union won on that. They won on pensions. So they've slowly started to make a little bit of progress. But I think in order to get a contract signed mm -hmm. before the two-year mark, there's mm -hmm. still a few more things they're going to have to work out, like some of those remote work policies. Can you talk about who uh, largely, well, I think we think of the New York Times and you just largely think of reporters whose names you see in bylines. It's a lot more than that, too. Yes, it is. So, and full disclosure, I worked at the New York Times. I was in the advertising department, so I was in that union. It's people who are on the business side, a lot of people who aren't yet in management, people who are in sales, marketing, et cetera. And then it's also people who are in the newsroom, people who are reporters and also aren't managers. Within this particular union, there's 1,400 people, which is pretty huge, Poppy. Mm -hmm. Now, of those 1,400, about 80% work in the newsroom, so the vast majority are journalists, but not all of them are walking. About 1,150 50 said that they're going to be participating in the walkout today. That means about 300 uh, are not going to be participating. Yeah, and in essence, it'll be basically the world seeing what it's like without that journalism that comes from all of those employees for 24 hours. Exactly. It is. And their head editor said, look, we're going to put out our paper today. Subscribers aren't going to not get journalism, but it's going to be a lot harder to do. Yeah. Sarah Fisher, thanks very much. Ahead, a look at... Prince Harry and Meghan, this documentary that's been released overnight, will tell you what our reporters who are live in London outside Buckingham Palace are seeing, not just in the documentary, but also the reaction coming from the royal family. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. In this family, sometimes, you know, you're part of the problem rather than part of the solution. And there is a huge level of unconscious bias. The thing with unconscious bias is it's actually no one's fault. But once it's been pointed out or identified within yourself, you then need to make it right. Prince Harry and Meghan, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, opening up about being part of the royal family. This is part of their new Netflix documentary series that just dropped overnight. It is worth noting uh, Netflix reportedly paid in the tens of millions of dollars for this. Bianca Novolo is standing by live outside of Buckingham Palace. Uh, let's first, though, go to our CNN anchor and royal correspondent Max Foster in London. Max, what do you think? I mean, you've seen so far, we've got about half the episodes. Everyone wanted to know, would there be just shocking revelations, are there? It's a really interesting insight into their thoughts and their process. We've only had the first three of six, so we're yet to see the probably more controversial part, which is uh, the run-up to them leaving their royal roles. Um, it has unruffled some feathers here, I have to say, because right at the part at the beginning of the series, it says the royal family declined to comment in this series. My sources are telling me that no one in the royal family was approached for comment, nor in the palaces. So that's one bit of response we've had, but I'm not expecting any major comment from Buckingham Palace officially uh, today or indeed next week. But here are some of the highlights from what we've seen so far. Um, hi, so we're here on... Uh, it's been billed as the first-hand account of the relationship between Harry and Meghan, their families and the media, 
and in their own words. The first three episodes of the Netflix docuseries on the couple dropped in the early hours of this morning, and it returned to some familiar themes. And that sort of press pack of raw correspondence is essentially just a, an extended PR arm of, of, of the royal family. Harry comparing Meghan's experience to that of his mother, Diana's. He feared she would be driven away by the media harassment. As far as a lot of the family were concerned, everything that she was being put through, they had been put through as well. So it was almost like a rite of passage. And some of the members of the family was like, right, but my wife had to go through that. So why should your girlfriend be treated any differently? Why should you get special treatment? Why should she be protected? And I said, the difference here is the race element. Ultimately, Harry says, he had to leave the UK to protect his family. I accept that there will be people around the world who fundamentally disagree with what I've done and how I've done it. But I knew that I had to do everything I could to protect my family. Hey, Grandma. <laughs> uh, yeah. Hey, Grandma. Especially after what happened to my mum. You know, I didn't want a history to repeat itself. We heard from Meghan's mother for the first time. And I remember when I first met him, too. You know, he was just like 6'1", handsome man with red hair. Really great manners. Harry says when he introduced Meghan to his family, they didn't think the relationship would last. The actress thing was the biggest problem, funny enough. There is a big idea of what that looks like from the UK standpoint. Hollywood and it's just very easy for them to typecast that. The couple say they felt unprotected by the palace against a barrage of media attacks. The palace is yet to comment. They are quite a divisive couple. If you're a Meghan fan or a Harry fan, I think there's a huge amount in here that you'll find really fascinating, really useful insights. If you're not Perhaps you're not even watching it. Max Foster, thank you very much. That's the most I've seen of it because, you know, it dropped when we were coming into work. <laughs> Something, we've got to get some us. sleep sometime. Yeah, right? we also had to, like, read the news, yeah. too. Uh, yeah, joining us. It. Oh, sorry. Yeah, cool. It's gone. <laughs> read it. That's all right. It doesn't matter. <laughs> you guys need me to step in here? <laughs> hey, Caitlin, the CNN's Bianca Novolo joins us from Buckingham Palace. And here in New York is... Trish Goddard, a CNN contributor and host of uh, the, the Week with Trish Goddard and Aaron Vanderhoof, a senior writer for Vanity Fair. Good morning, guys. <laughs> Good morning everyone. <laughs> Appreciate you joining us. So, can we go to Buckingham Palace? Uh, because Bianca is at Bus Buckingham Palace. Um, Bianca, thank you so much. I, I, I just want to pick up on something quickly that Max said that um, there's a discrepancy about the palace being asked to comment and then saying, well, we're not going to comment. Can you clarify for us? I'm afraid I can't because nobody has better royal sources than Max Foster, who's actually in the documentary as well himself, saying something in praise of Meghan in the middle of episode two. But it does highlight how this can begin to be divisive as it gets dissected and as we get a response from the palace officially, if we do. But as Max alluded to, you do get the sense as you're watching it that it's building up to a crescendo because what the first three episodes do is lay out their love story, which is quite touching in parts, and the early stages of the engagement 
engagement and Meghan's initial reception here in the United Kingdom. Naturally, the second half is going to be the reasons behind why they felt they had to leave, why it wasn't safe for the family and they felt they couldn't live in these circumstances any longer. What struck me is the intimacy of the portrayal. There are scenes where Meghan Markle is in her bathrobe and a turban with no makeup on, clearly emotional in her own bedroom, recording herself and how she's feeling. They talk about their first date, their first kiss, sharing a tent together. It's an insight we've never had into figures in the royal family before. It also works on numerous levels. There's clearly the family element, the impact that this documentary and the revelations within it will have on the relationship between Prince Harry and his brother, Meghan and the rest of the royal family, and the situation for their children, but also on a royal and a national level, because there are several references to Britain's history of slavery and the part that that plays into racial discourse, and also the fact that Brexit was going on when Meghan became engaged to Harry, and the fact that a historian suggests that may have added to the discourse around her race and the possible resentment of having somebody from her background marry into the royal family. This is fascinating because it is such an inside look at this and their life. Some people may say, you know, we've already seen enough. There's already been so much about this and, and it's oversaturated. I wonder how differently, though, it's viewed in the United States versus how it's viewed, you know. In the UK. In the UK by British media, the two different approaches that we've seen to how candidly they speak. I think that the UK is going to hide, find it more difficult because this is very Hollywood, it's very produced and what have you, and British documentaries tend to be a lot more raw. Um, but I, I actually liked it. I actually don't see anything wrong. I don't see... You know, yesterday I was asked, do you think the royal family will be nervous about this? I think the British media will be more nervous. Why? More critical. Yeah. Uh, more critical and more nervous. And they've been... I, I thought that because of the build-up, the build-up. Um, and uh, in that first episode, you see uh, a mention of that almost straight out of Compton, which was one of the first headlines that one of the newspapers came out with. And that newspaper has been relentlessly attacking. Uh, and as we know, there is a, a lawsuit against that newspaper from several very high-profile people, including Harry. Um, it exposes yeah. them, is that what which, you're saying? Yeah, I think it exposes them. And it links them back to the days of Diana. It links them back to days of tabloids like the Daily Mirror when they were phone-tapping. I mean, I have to say the, the Daily Mail has refuted that, but there's still a lawsuit there. So I think the British media will see that as more of an attack than the royal family would. Let's listen to a little bit more of this. This is about, with Meghan talking about sort of, it's not comfortable to do this, but why they felt they had to do this. Here she was. I'm not going to say that it's comfortable, but when you feel like people haven't gotten any sense of who you are, for so long, it's really nice to just be able to have the opportunity to let people have a bit more of a glimpse into what's happened and, and also who we are. What do you think? Well, I think watching, having watched all three episodes now, uh, I think that you see what really was motivating Megan to do this in her conversations about the Markle family. You realize that you have heard five of Megan's anonymous friends talk about their relationship. You've heard Megan's lawyers talk about her relationship with her dad, but you've never heard her talk about it. And I think that there is a sense where you can tell she started to really resent how much 
you know, courtiers were telling her how to deal with her own family and how much it was about optics and not about the fact that she had a difficult childhood growing up. She, you know, her parents divorced when she was really young. And I think that there's a lot of trauma around that for her. And I think this is her taking the opportunity to finally clear that up. So the first three episodes, I don't know about what's going to happen next, but definitely the first three episodes, they are about Meghan Markle's relationship with her family and the way that the media interfered in that and Harry's relationship with the media. Listen, I, I want to, I got to ask this question. So um, this is, I don't know how any other way to ask it, but ask it, because you know you and I. Yeah, 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 okay, so here's the thing. You can, it, it, look, you can say the most supportive things about Meghan and Harry, and mm -hmm. they'll take the one thing where you sort of go, well, I, you know, this sort of, you know, struck me differently, and then they make a headline out of that. Yeah, that yeah. has happened to me before. Yeah. So okay. one can certainly be um, supportive of Meghan's story, especially as a black woman, yeah. what she faced there, but also analyze and, 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 and actually criticize how it is happening, the approach, the, this new thing that they're doing. As we said earlier, the sort of Kardashification of the royal yeah. family. Yeah. Some people are uncomfortable with that. It is certainly their truth, and it's their right to be able to do it. Mm. But do you understand there is... But I think, I think young people, I mean, their yeah. fan base, if you look at... Young at this, people. Are young people. Right. And young people are cool with this because they've right. been Kardashianized. Right. Uh, and they like the talking... It, it's, it's cool for young guys to talk about their relationship and that they met somebody on Instagram, you know, and, and they went to Africa. It, it's cool for men, young men to talk about that. So I think it's going to endear them to that younger audience. And that's what they're looking at. They're is not looking a, at the old guys. Is that a lesson? And then for William and Kate and, no, and think, even I the think, king, no, because no. they're saying they're saying they want to modernize the modern family. Yeah, but, is this but, the way to do no, it? No, no, the, no, the no, monarchy, I should say. No, but there's a modernization in the nice middle class way, which is William and Catherine, okay. uh, and the establishment way. And then there's who Harry's always been, and I think we saw that in the first episode. He's always been the rebel. He's always been, you know, Harry was loved for being the rebel, and. He's just continuing that. It does feel a little bit uncomfortable now and again, but I'm sure a lot of young people would say, yeah, that's cool. You know, it's, it's, really it's not made for point. us. Yeah. yeah, it's a different generation. Different generation. Uh, they're trying to appeal to. I, kinda, I, I got to see it. them. Sorry, I'm sorry. I got to see them the other night at... You um, did, at the Ripple Awards. At the Ripple Awards. And I, just watching people flock to them. I, I like them. I think they're... You didn't flock? No, no, I, no, no, no. I'm not going to run over. I didn't run over. He we was sat, at their table. We at the he didn't table. have to What? Yes. But I didn't have to, like, run. But I liked watching people. I'm more of an observer than yeah, yeah. I liked watching how people reacted to them. And how did they? And um, it was very much in the same vein as I did with mom, his mother. Diana. I, Diana. I remember covering Diana. This was years ago. I'm old. In the 90s for the CFD Awards. Right. And when she walked into this fashion thing, I think it was up the museum of, uh, I think it was a museum of natural history or whatever, yeah. into this event. And everyone was like, oh. <gasps> And it was young people. And I remember yeah. this one, you know, I remember this one um, uh, woman who was covering it for us, uh, for our, our style thing. And our photographer stumbled and only got her foot as she was walking <laughs> in and like had to adjust it, whatever. And she goes, how do I start this story? And she said, sure um, she, had great she said one, uh, one small step for Aww. something and one giant leap for the fashion industry. Right. So they like had they, to fix they, the thing. And so I just remember watching the ascent of Diana. And this is very much in that vein. Which wow. rankled the royal family, though. So much. Princess Diana got so much more attention than the other right. royals in the family. And that was a huge point of dispute with the queen. That's well, what's happening with Ch Kate, but, right? but here's the thing now with Charles. We saw a different, very different Charles since uh, the queen died. You know, far more sociable, far more touchy-feely, 
they're, they're catching up. William and Catherine are catching up. But these guys, for youngsters, are way ahead. Yeah. Interesting. Now there's the conversation about the <laughs> We're too old. <laughs> thank you. Bianca Nobilo, thank you. Thank you, Tricia. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you Appreciate all. it. Um, do you get paid through PayPal or other third-party apps? The IRS has some news for you. Rachel Solomon is here with what you need to know. And some major Rahel, help. Rahel, Rahel. Sorry, Rahel. Ah. I know, I'm sorry. I'm reading it off teleprompter. I'm not such a good reader sometimes. Sorry about <laughs> You're that. You're a great reader. All right, some major <laughs> health news, though. Uh, for a legend, Celine Dion, what she is revealing this morning. All right, welcome back to CNN This Morning. Coming up, we have a lot of news for you, starting with a significant easing of the COVID controls of the Chinese government saying that people no longer need to show a negative test or health code in order to travel between different parts of the country. That's a major change, as we've seen those protests that were happening last week. And a CNN exclusive also this morning, the Biden administration is now considering giving Ukraine weapons that are banned in 100 countries. We'll see if they ultimately do. And also, is Elon Musk on the verge of losing the title of the world's richest person? We'll tell you. Hmm. All right. If you have a small business or a side hustle and get paid through Venmo, which I'm sure Elon Musk does not, maybe PayPal since he helped found it, or Cash App, the IRS now wants to know you will now have to report any payment of $600 or more. Our business correspondent, Rahel Solomon, joins us now. I have so many questions on this, including what if you're paying your you know, someone like you're splitting the cost of a trip with someone, you're paying a friend back. Does that then become taxable income? No, not necessarily. Okay. So this is a pretty big deal and will impact a lot of people. And essentially what it means is that if you uh, provide some service, if you have some sort of side hustle, some sort of side gig, and you receive more than $600 in payments over a year or one transaction that is more than $600, you are likely going to get a tax form. To put this in perspective, the threshold, the bar, used to be $20,000. So that's why this is going to impact a lot more people. And this will likely create a bit of confusion because folks who, now to be fair, we were all supposed to be reporting all of our income all of it. to begin with, but now the IRS knows if you make money on these third-party platforms. And we can show you an example of some of them. It's, it's Venmo, it's PayPal, it's uh, Zelle, eBay, Amazon Marketplace. So say, for example, if you sell a couch for $600, well, you're probably going to get a 1099K for this. So I talked to a tax advisor yesterday night to understand sort of how this will work. And he says this is probably the biggest deal that many taxpayers who self-prepare their tax returns could look at this and say, I have income and not realize they also have expenses. Unfortunately, the people that this will hurt will be the people that some of these bills recently passed have been designed to help. So the takeaway for people at home is if you get a 1099 form this year, and most probably will, right, if you've had any sort of extra income, don't panic, but also think about do you have any expenses that you could sort of write off against that? So um, if you're unsure, consult a tax professional, but it's a pretty big deal. But this is this is incredibly significant because of exactly who it will impact. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's the question here is what are the implications with the criticism that we've seen over it unfairly targeting certain certain groups of people? Well, I think the reality is this will impact small business owners, right? Plumbers, uh, if you have a service business, if you have a hairstylist, if you have a type of business where you are getting paid via PayPal, via Venmo, via these things, you are likely going to get a tax form when you may not 
have gotten it in the past. Again, the, the bar before was twenty thousand. Now it's six hundred dollars. So I mean, there, there's a lot that could sort of. Well, you get a tax that. form for different, like for one for Venmo, one for PayPal, one for Cash App, or is it going to be one for all? It's of them? a great question. So each third-party platform is now required to to report this, right? So if you uh, sell something on eBay, if you sell something on Amazon, you're likely going to get a ten ninety-nine from eBay and from Amazon. Thank you, Rahel. Oh, hey, Stan, you know my name. Of course I know your name. It's just the prompter, you know, sometimes. It's early, you know. Thanks, uh, Rahel. So a bungle coup attempt, a coup attempt, excuse me, and a fall from power, how Peru's president went from addressing Congress to handcuffs in just a matter of hours, plus a major story impacting elections to tell you about. That's right, Donna. Supreme Court case now before the justices that could really change the way elections are run and some say even imperil democracy. I'll tell you how the justices seem to be leaning after yesterday's arguments. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. So this morning, the Supreme Court grappling with a historic case over whether to allow state legislators to draw congressional maps and set federal voting rules without any oversight from state courts. After three hours of debate, the justices seem divided in three different directions. CNN's Jessica Schneider joins us now uh, this morning. Jessica, good morning to you. What are some of these sticking points in the justices' decisions? Yeah, good morning, Don. The court really did seem to be leaning toward accepting some iteration of this independent state legislature theory. If that is accepted, it would give broad power to state lawmakers to control elections. Because of that, critics are warning that even if this court approves a narrow version of that power, it could lead to a lot more court fights and even greater restrictions on voting access. Who controls U.S. elections? That's the central question before the Supreme Court in a case that revolves around an obscure legal theory that says state legislatures should have the final say on election procedures and redistricting, not state courts. The blast radius from their theory would sow elections chaos, forcing a confusing two-track system with one set of rules for federal elections and another for state ones. North Carolina Republicans who lead the state legislature are challenging a ruling from their state Supreme Court, striking down a redistricting map they drew. They're relying on the independent state legislature theory, the idea that state legislatures should have unchecked power to control election procedures and that state courts and state constitutions have no role in checking that power. It's a concept that was first raised by Chief Justice William Rehnquist in the Bush v. Gore decision. And while four conservatives on the court have previously expressed interest in the issue, Justice Brett Kavanaugh seemed to push back on it as too broad of an expansion of state legislative power. Your position seems to go further than Chief Justice Rehnquist's position in Bush v. Gore, where he seemed to acknowledge that state courts would have a role interpreting state law. Some Trump supporters seized on the theory in 2020 to argue state lawmakers in battleground states had the power to override the will of voters and choose presidential electors who favored Trump. The Supreme Court's ruling likely would not extend to the issue of electors, but some are warning it could be a slippery slope if the court finds in favor of the Republicans here. 
it would make the election related decisions of legislators uh, effectively unreviewable by state court judges, cutting neutral arbiters out of the process. And it would allow politically motivated legislators to engage in extreme disenfranchisement of voters. The hours long debate centered around what the founders intended when they wrote the Constitution and the meaning of the elections clause that says the times, places and manner of holding elections are for the legislature to determine. I think what might strike a person is that uh, this is a proposal that gets rid of the normal checks and balances. Legislators, we all know, have their own self-interest. They want to get reelected. And so there are countless times when they have incentives to suppress votes. And Justice Kagan wasn't the only one expressing some skepticism here. The Chief Justice John Roberts, along with Justices Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett, on the conservative side, they all pushed back on a really broad reading of this independent state legislature theory. And, Don, it really suggests that this court here, it might accept it in some sense, but it also might try to find some middle ground if they do, in fact, embrace this very broad and perhaps drastic theory. Very active court session uh, this time around. Jessica Schneider, thank you so much. Appreciate it. All right. Let's discuss more with CNN senior Supreme Court analyst John Buskubik and Ben Ginsburg. He's a CNN legal analyst, also a Republican election lawyer. And he filed an amicus brief in this case, arguing against this independent state legislature theory. Good morning, guys. Thanks so much for being here. I listened to the oral arguments yesterday. It was completely riveting. Uh, three hours, right? Double the time it was supposed to be. Joan, what I'm struck by is this is anathema to many big-name conservative lawyers, but it seems like the most conservative justices on this court see some sort of path for it. Uh, definitely. It was, uh, it was interesting, Poppy, you say how riveting it was, and, and in the courtroom itself, uh, it was even more so, you know, with uh, the tension emanating from the bench and the, the room just filled every seat. Uh, and this is something that Justices Thomas, Gorsuch, and Alito have been pushing for. Uh, they take a very limited, restrictive reading of the elections clause, and they've been laying groundwork since uh, 2020, as Jessica mentioned in the opening piece about some of the lawyers from former uh, President Donald Trump's campaign pushing it back in 2020. And those justices uh, at the far right of this bench uh, raising questions about uh, state courts, you know, essentially going rogue in their mind and second guessing what the legislatures are mm-hmm. doing. Are, are doing. So it, it would be radical. And uh, I know that uh, Justice Kagan uh, touched on that in some of her other comments, too. She, she certainly did. And she laid out a lot of actually, Ben, what you laid out in your amicus brief in this case, because the reality is you've got 30 state legislatures in America now controlled by Republicans, 17 by Democrats. Can you explain for people, as Kagan did in the simplest terms, what this would upend if adopted in any form? State legislatures, the most representative part of our government, would basically have unchecked powers. They would not be subject to gubernatorial vetoes, not to popular referendums. Uh, It would give them the ability not only to perpetuate themselves in power, but also to form all the rules under federal elections not subject to review. So while there may have been some state courts Uh, that went rogue. There is a middle ground that the justices were all prodding at uh, that would allow uh, some review of what uh, state legislatures did by state courts, as long as the state courts didn't go too crazy. Well, you just said uh, legislatures, state legislatures are the most representative, right? 
so what do you, to the people. So what do you say to people who say, well, then why shouldn't they have this unchecked power? Because the system of, of our government for 233 <laughs> years has always been based on checks and balances. Right. And this would take away that basic protection. And because of that point, Joan, um, conservative legal luminary, you know, like Ben, is uh, conservative former Judge Michael Ludig, yeah. who called that, who not only who was so passionate about this, was co-counsel on this case, and who said, this is the whole ballgame. Is it really, is it that big? Well, if they, uh, yes. I would say if they rule to the extreme that was presented by uh, North Carolina legislatures, uh, the, the legislature position yesterday, yes, it would be the whole, whole ball game because it could, and I do have to say, not only could it affect uh, election practices and redistricting, if it were then accept, uh, extended to the electors clause of the Constitution, which is related in some way, it's distinct now, but it could go further because it was the electors clause that was at issue in the case of Bush v. Gore. Uh, this could this could actually affect uh, the certification of elections. Yep. And again, at its most extreme, it could it could uh, upend uh, federal elections all the way up to the presidency. Wow. Ben, very quickly, you worked on Bush v. Gore. Uh, how, how shocked are you that we're at this moment uh, with this court, at this moment in this country when so many people are questioning elections and you know, trying to overturn them? Yeah, I mean, Bush versus Gore in the election of 2000 was a very, very extraordinarily tight election. But both sides recognized that there would be one winner. Mm -hmm. And so the situation we find ourselves in now with the questioning of elections uh, is really harmful. And in a way, the Supreme Court now has a huge burden on it in deciding this case as to whether there will be uh, sufficient faith in the reliability of our elections or not. Incredibly important decision ahead for the justices. Ben Ginsburg, thank you. Joan Biskupic, thanks so much. And CNN This Morning continues right now. Any beautiful voice, beautiful everything, dress, beautiful woman, oh, and good morning, news, everyone. Yeah, you're right. Terrible news. That's what we're going to share with you. It's December 8th, by the way. Welcome. The reason that we opened up with that showing you Celine Dion is because Celine Dion is making a heartbreaking announcement of a rare medical condition. We were going to have more on that in just a moment. But first, we want to catch you up. These are the five big things that CNN is following this morning. A chilling new warning from Russian President Vladimir Putin telling war-weary Russian citizens to prepare for a longer war in Ukraine. His invasion now in its 10th month. In a Kremlin speech, Putin says Russia will fight with, quote, all means available and not ruling out the first use of nuclear weapons. Also this morning, investigators in North Carolina are zeroing in on two possible motives for the targeted attack on two energy substations. One involves extremists on online platforms encouraging attacks on critical infrastructure, and the other looks at a series of recent disruptions of LGBTQ plus events across the country. There's also a new development this morning in the mishandling of potentially classified White House documents. A firm, two individuals that were hired 
by former President Trump's lawyers searched four of his properties in recent weeks. They found two items marked as classified inside a Florida storage unit that has the former president's belongings inside of it. Of course, earlier this year, federal agents took hundreds of classified documents from Trump's home as Trump's home as they were executing a search warrant. We'll tell you what this new development means for that investigation. The Biden administration is considering the Ukrainian military's controversial request for access to the U.S. stockpile of cluster warhead munitions. They are banned by more than 100 countries, but are continually being used by Russia. And now Ukraine wants access. And major news out of Peru this morning, a bungled coup attempt landing the president behind bars. The country now has its first female leader. We have a live report from the country ahead. Right now, though, gas prices are cheaper than they were one year ago. Some needed relief for Americans who have spent this year grappling with the worst inflation in decades. For some perspective now, just a month ago, the average cost of a gallon was $3.80. It's bringing now CNN's chief business correspondent, Christine Romans, who knows all about <laughs> this. Um, I said, look, I don't know. Am I going too far by saying good morning to you? Good morning. Is inflation... Peaked? Is that? Look, in terms of gas prices in the near term, yes. I mean, you had more than $5 a gallon this summer, and we are far, far from that. Just in the last month, 47 cents has come off a gallon of gasoline. So let me put that into real perspective here. If you have an SUV and you're filling it up, it's about 10 bucks less today than it was last month. So that's a noticeable amount here. Couple of things going. You had some refineries that were offline that have had repairs and are online now, so they're refining a little bit more gas. But also you have these concerns about COVID shutdowns in China. China's using less petroleum, right? So the whole worldwide market of gas and oil, there's a little bit less demand. There's some concerns about slowing demand in the U.S. next year. So futures markets have been a little bit cool. But this is all good news for anybody who's filling up at the gas tank. But can I ask you, because a huge part of this, and the White House every day is tracking these gas prices. We Mm -hmm. know that the chief of staff, Ron Klain, is getting up, was getting up at 3 a.m. to check the gas prices when they (laughs) updated. A big question that has been about diesel, because that is also how goods are transported. So what are we seeing with diesel prices? Because that is really key to inflation prices. Absolutely. So gasoline prices are cooling a little bit faster than diesel prices, but those are also showing signs of peaking as well. So that's incredibly important. Now, one of the things that can be sort of the, the downside, if I could say this, of, of lower gas prices. Sometimes they fall because you're worried about a recession. Yeah. So they're falling for the wrong reasons. You know, they were very low during the pandemic. That's because we were in the middle of a pandemic. And sometimes you'll hear people say, oh, you know, gas prices are up so much from that pandemic low of $1.85. Well, you don't want low gas prices because the economy is crashing, right? <laughs> Christine Romans, we appreciate that. Thank nice you so to much. See you. And we're standing by right now for breaking news. This is CNN Breaking News. So this is the breaking news right now. We're getting news that Brittany Griner is free. The WNBA star who has been detained in Russia since February has been released in a prisoner swap with arms dealer Victor Boot. She is now in U.S. custody. Our team of reporters and analysts standing by. We want to start now with Kylie Atwood at the State Department. Kylie, hello. Welcome to you. What do we know at this point? Yeah, well, we've just learned from a U.S. official, as you said, Brittany Griner, after about 10 months of being in Russian prison, is now free. She is in the custody of U.S. officials. We're expecting uh, to hear from President Biden today, according to that U.S. official. And a source familiar tells us that this was 
a prisoner swap. It was for Brittany Griner for Victor Boot. And just to remind folks who Victor Boot is, he is an infamous uh, drug, uh, excuse me, arms trafficker. He has he is serving a 25-year prison sentence here in the United States, and he is someone that the Russians have been wanting for a while. Now, of course, Griner is a very famous basketball star, and there has been an immense amount of public pressure on the Biden administration to secure her release. But guys, notably this morning, we're not hearing that there is any news on Paul Whelan. And Paul Whelan is another American who has been wrongfully detained in Russia since 2018, going on four years in Russian prison. And so that is notable because U.S. officials have been saying for quite some time now that they were pushing for both Brittany Griner and Paul Whelan to be released. So, of course, today will be an incredibly joyful family for Brittany Griner's family, but we can expect it will be an incredibly emotional fam uh, emotional day for Paul Whelan's family. And of course, we're waiting to hear more as to how this all came to fruition, because you'll remember that earlier this summer, we reported that the Biden administration had put an offer on the table mm -hmm. with the Russians to try and get out Brittany Griner and Paul Whelan. And Victor Boot, that convicted arms trafficker, was part of that proposed deal. So now we're seeing part of that deal come to fruition, but of course, not in its entirety. And Tony well, Blinken is speaking about that this weekend, too, about this possible deal for the prisoner swap. And Kylie, yeah. I, my question on this is obviously this is big reporting that we had over the summer about this offer that the Biden administration made for this convicted arms dealer, Victor Boot. They thought that was a big deal to offer this up. They thought the Russians were going to jump on that proposal mm -hmm. when they said that they would conduct that prisoner swap. The Russians did not. And it caused serious frustration inside the White House. That bled out publicly. They made that very clear that they were frustrated with the fact that the Russians had not taken them up on that offer. The question around this, we do have big questions about Paul Whelan and his family will as well. But what changed in this? Is there any sense of why the Russians have now taken the United States up on this on, on this offer to get Brittany Griner and bring her home? Well, listen, we don't know the specifics, but you're exactly right, Caitlin. There was an incredible amount of frustration from U.S. officials because they felt like they were offering Russia something that Russia really wanted. Victor Boot's name has come up repeatedly when you uh, have talked about potential prisoner swaps between the U.S. and Russia. But uh, clearly, Here. the Russians realized that there was a, an incredibly high price on Brittany Griner. Uh, we should note that, you know, she is a famous basketball player, an American star. She really galvanized the LGBTQ community, the African-American community, to pressure the Biden administration to get her out and rest assured that Russia was watching as that happened. Of course, uh, Paul Whelan was part of those conversations, but she galvanized the public in a different way than we have seen before when it comes to Americans who are uh, detained abroad. Uh we have David Sanger and Abby Phillip to join the conversation, but uh, Kylie, bef you know, before you go do more reporting on this, I do have a question because when, Pre and Caitlin knows as well, when President Biden was asked not that long ago if there were any terms under which he would engage with Vladimir Putin directly, the only term was if it had to do with the release of Brittany Griner. Um, do we know anything about the president's involvement in this in any way? Because Secretary Blinken did say the president was briefed every step of the way this summer, remember, before they made this offer in June to Russia. 
Yeah, that's right. So uh, Putin didn't end up showing up at the right. G20, which was the place where we thought potentially Biden would see him if there was something to discuss on a prisoner swap. So uh, that was sort of off the table. But when it comes to President Biden's role in all this, when we've talked to U.S. officials and tracked this back and forth, what they have repeatedly said is that they weren't telling the Russians anything was on the table without mm -hmm. approval at the highest levels. Yeah. And so what that means, of course, is that President President Biden knew everything in terms of what U.S. officials were offering to the Russians privately. Mm -hmm. uh, the Russians over the course of the last few months have been incredibly hard interlocutors because they have been coming back to the U.S. with proposals that U.S. officials said they simply could deliver on. Well, clearly they felt uh, like they mm -hmm. could deliver on this deal here. Thank David you. Singer, let's, let's, I wanna, let's remind people of what happened here because this is on February 27th and this is when she played for the uh, Mercury. She was a Mercury star. She was detained in Russia. She was on her way to Russia at a Moscow airport, uh, and there was a substance in her bag. And so she was detained for that, uh, contained oil, cannabis oil, vape cartridges. But the, um, the thing that happened that was so important, and we should remember, a week later, there was the invasion of Russia. And so that added a complication on top of this. So this is all playing out in the backdrop, David. And it couldn't have happened. The timing could not have been worse for her. That's absolutely right. And there is, of course, suspicion that she was uh, grabbed at the airport. Obviously, it was a week in advance of the invasion, uh, exactly in part, uh, Don, because the Russians wanted to grab a hostage and have sort of one more bargaining chip as the war went on. Mm -hmm. uh, they've also wanted to get uh, Victor Boot out of uh, prison. He's been there for more than a, a decade for a long time. And one of the questions that has been sort of circulating through this whole thing is whether this longtime arms dealer, who is considered one of the most dangerous people on earth, was worth more, uh, you know, the, United, the, the United States should insist that they get more than uh, uh, just um, uh, a single person back in return, and particularly somebody who is um, held uh, wrongfully. So the fact that they didn't get Paul Whelan as part yeah. of this, uh, as I think going to be politically a bit difficult for yeah, the yeah. president. Well, I mean, and also he got the bigger name, but he didn't get both of them. But he's we're in learning Paul also, Whelan has... One second. We're learning the president is going to speak at 8.30, just so you know. So stand by for that. Go ahead. Paul, Paul Whelan, just David, to your point, I mean, has been in the hospital in, in recent days That's in Russia. Right. Abby, you had that interview that we'll all remember. And I understand this morning you've been in touch with Cheryl, who is Brittany Griner's wife. Yeah, we... Um have been, you know, waiting, they have been waiting for this news for quite some time. And, um, you know, what I've been hearing from over there is that they've been waiting for the phone call, and that phone call clearly came this morning. Uh, and the, the very brief interactions that I had with Sherelle over the last few hours, uh, her spirits were high this morning, and I think you can see why this has been a long-awaited moment. And uh, just to kind of recap a little bit, in, in the last few months, uh, President Biden hosted Sherelle Griner at the White House, along right. with the family of Paul Whelan. And one of the um, main messages that President Biden wanted to convey in that moment was that he was doing everything that he possibly could, but that they did not feel like Russia was seriously coming to the table. Russia was asking for more than the White House believed that they could give them in that moment. And so as we look at what has happened here, where we have uh, Victor a boot exchanged for just one of the of the the two uh 
Americans who are in the, the most uh, kind of high-profile detention situations in Russia, uh, it, it seems that something significant must have changed where Russia was willing to come to the table uh, again in a serious way and at least do something. That was not the case a few months ago, at least not according to what the families had been told by President Biden and by the White House. But they came out of those meetings feeling like uh, like the administration was really putting everything that they could into it. And based on the president's public statement saying he only wants to talk to Putin about about this issue, uh, that was as strong a signal as you could get that this was at the top of the agenda. And, and Jill Doherty, CNN's former Moscow bureau chief. Jill, I want to talk to you about this because we are hearing that Biden has been on the phone with Brittany Griner, we are told. We believe uh, that Vice President Harris was also in the room. Obviously, there's going to be a lot of steps that happen here. There are a lot of questions about what exactly was part of this transaction. Brittany Griner is obviously going to have to undergo a medical evaluation. She had been being kept in this Russian penal colony. Can you kind of tell us uh, what Brittany Griner is being released from and what potentially could be Putin's thinking on now taking the U.S. up on this offer? Yeah, that's really the question, isn't it? But conditions are really severe. I mean, this is located in a, a region that's called Mordovia. It's really remote. Uh, these penal colonies, as they're called, have very uh, spartan conditions. Um, they have to do labor, depending upon what that is, often sewing well, I, uh, for hours and hours. It's a bad situation. But I think when you ask why now, there obviously Victor Boot has been key throughout for Russia. And all of this depends on the decision by President Putin. And look at the situation right now. Victor Boot, even though it's been a while, he is a arms dealer and he is very much a person who could be of more value in the time of war mm. because he knows presumably still has those connections for selling weapons, obtaining weapons, etc. So I would think that might be useful. And then, of course, how does this help Putin is the ultimate question. It could make him look more magnanimous, but I don't think that's probably a major part of this. But we'll, we'll uh, see what President Biden says about it. If you're just tuning in, I want to tell you that uh, we're getting news in now, the breaking news, WNBA star Brittany Griner has been released from Russian detention. We're standing by to hear from the president of the United States, Joe Biden, expected to speak at 8.30 this morning uh, in the Roosevelt Room from the White House. We're also getting word that the Griner and Paul Whelan's family have all been informed uh, of the release. Again, this is just breaking on scene. I want to get now to CNN's Frederick Plyken. Before you go to Fred, can I just add what Kevin Liptek from our White House team, he says that Biden gave final approval for the prisoner swap to Free Griner over the past week and that he was updated on the swap as it was taking place and this morning. And Anthony Blinken had been asked about this on the Sunday shows and had mm -hmm. been indicated, had been positive all along that they were trying to work out some sort of prisoner swap and prisoner exchange. And now it appears that it has come through uh, fruition. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. So let's get now to CNN's Frederick Pleitkin. It is uh, his duty and responsibilities mm -hmm. to uh, cover these stories. Uh, this is a breaking news. Had expected that it, it might happen, but now it appears that it has happened. Frederick, what are you hearing from the region? 
Mm. Well, well, first of all, we're trying to get in touch with Brittany Griner's legal team in Russia. I followed the trial on the ground uh, outside of Moscow for basically the entire time that it was going on. And I can tell you that, um, Don, the legal team really did pick a big up, put up a big fight for Brittany Griner. They said that she was in good spirits. And I was in touch with them last week. And they said that they had managed to visit her and that she was still in good spirits despite, despite the fact that she was now in this penal colony. But, you know, the way that the Russian legal system works, the way that the odds were stacked against her in that court, even the lawyers that were representing her said the only thing that they could really hope for was for a prisoner swap like this to happen. They knew that it was going to be something that was going to be very complicated. They definitely knew that the Russians were playing hardball, that they wanted a high-profile person like Victor Boot in return. But they also said that you know, they basically exhausted all the means that they had within the Russian legal process, which is a difficult one anyway. And Brittany Griner had already been transferred to that penal colony uh, in, in the place called Mordovia, which is an extremely tough place, which is, by the way, also the same region that Paul Whelan is in as well. And so they were saying right now, they weren't getting any information from the Russian side or from the U.S. side, but they were really hoping that the prisoner swap uh, would happen. And we are in touch with them right now. We're going to see if we can get word from them how they feel about all this. But certainly, you know, one of the things that you guys were talking about, we were seeing as well, uh, was the Russians seemingly becoming more and more open to the swap happening. They were extremely angry at the beginning when the U.S. made public that it had put forward a substantial offer. And when, when things came out that Victor Boot was part of that offer and Brittany Griner was part of that offer as well. The Russians the entire time were saying it's counterproductive. They want everything to happen behind closed doors. But what we saw in the past couple of weeks was top-level Russian politicians then coming out and saying that, yes, they were open to such a swap. They still think the negotiations needed to happen behind closed doors. But they also put that name Victor Boot out there as well. And you could see that they were setting the stage in the Russian public, in the Russian public sphere also, for something like this to happen. So I think you're absolutely right to say that you know, many people were expecting the swap would happen, uh, not clear when it was going to happen. But of course, with these things, it's all so delicate and so up in the air until the very last moment that it was impossible to tell whether this would actually be successful. And certainly I can tell you from the early reactions that I'm getting that Brittany Griner's legal team is definitely extremely happy that she's finally able to get out. They were with her the entire time. They put up a big legal defense for her. They knew you know, the psychological trauma that Brittany yeah. Griner was also going through being uh, in, in that jail. So, so definitely a good moment for them and definitely a great moment for Brittany Griner and her family as well, guys. Frederick Pleiken yeah. joining us uh, from Berlin with the news this morning. Um, we are told was... that the, the swap happened at the Abu Dhabi airport and that uh, she is on her way back to U.S. soil again, Brittany Grinder, the WNBA star, released from That's Russian detention. We're, we're standing by for the ten, president of the United States. It's been 10 months since she's been held in captivity. 8.30 um, this morning. Our, the Worldwide Resources, Frederick Pleiken and others are on the ground there, and we're going to continue to follow. Yeah, and I want to go to MJ Lee, who is live at the White House. MJ, I know President Biden just tweeted a photo. Sherelle Griner, Brittany Griner's wife, is in the Oval Office. He spoke to Brittany Griner this morning. He said she is on a plane. She is on her way home. He's expected to speak shortly, as Don noted. Uh, what else have you heard from the White House on, on this monumental moment? 
Yeah, if, if we could uh, put up those photos, this is the photo that the president's Twitter account uh, just sent out, uh, along with this message that says, moments ago, I spoke to Brittany Griner. She is safe. She is on a plane. She is on her way home. I mean, you can see just the expressions of joy on uh, Sherelle Griner's face here. She is clearly with the president. The vice president uh, is there. This is uh, presumably the moment that he is talking about when he just spoke uh, directly with Brittany Griner on the phone. I mean, Caitlin, it is just uh, difficult to overstate what a big problem and a priority this whole issue had become uh, for President Biden. How much pressure uh, he had come under in recent months, whether it is uh, questions from the media, whether it, whether, uh, it was from celebrities, including folks in the sports world, uh, family members to get her out of Russia. And this is why we uh, eventually saw the president meeting in person with Griner's wife at the White House earlier this summer. Uh, there were obviously lots of conversations. And, you know, these conversations and the outreach and the efforts really took place at the highest levels of the Biden administration. Uh, and I have to tell you, you know, obviously the issue of an American being wrongly detained in a foreign country. This is how the U.S. has always described uh, Griner's detention in Russia. That is always going to be incredibly diplomatically complicated. But for this president and in this situation, just take a step back and think about the fact that all of this was happening in Russia, in the middle of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And this ended up raising so many questions uh, for President Biden on how and whether to engage Vladimir Putin. You know, in general, when he has been asked this question about are you going to talk to him? Are you willing to talk to him? He has mostly recently said, look, I don't want to uh, have a conversation with him unless he is serious in giving signs about wanting to end the war. But I thought a really telling moment from earlier this year was in his interview with Jake Tapper when he was asked, look, Mr. President, would you be willing to have a conversation with Putin on the sidelines of the G20? And he initially said no. And then he amended his answer to say, I, I would be willing to do this if he showed signs of being willing to discuss Griner. So I think that exchange really captured how much the Griner issue was was top of mind and has been top of mind for this president uh, as he has been dealing with this ongoing war in Ukraine. And again, just the question of how do you deal with someone like Vladimir Putin? The, um, I just, we need to also tell you that Victor Boot, who is the Russian arms dealer, who is, was supposed to serve 25 years uh, here, has been returned to Russia. We hear that he is back on Russian soil. Uh, Brittany Griner is on a plane on her way back to the United States to the United States. Let's just pull up so. for our viewers this photo again. I think it says it all in the Oval Office. You have the president, Secretary Blinken, uh, Vice uh, President Kamala Harris. There you have uh, Sherelle, uh, Brittany's wife, uh, embracing uh, the, the president there as well. But these photos really say it all about what she is finally coming back to. Let's go back to the State Department. Kylie Atwood is there. Kylie, I, I do think we, ha we have to also continue to shine a light on the fact that Paul Whelan, the former U.S. Marine, is not part of this deal. And when Trevor Reed was released, remember what Paul Whelan said, which is, why was I left behind? Do we know anything on that this morning? No, we, we really don't know exactly what changed because we, we have heard U.S. officials say repeatedly over the course of the last 10 months that they want Brittany Griner home and they want Paul Whelan home. As Don was just saying, just over the weekend, Secretary of State Tony Blinken was questioned on this pretty directly uh, on a Sunday show on CBS. And he said the intention of the administration is to bring both of these Americans home. But he did not equivocally state that they wouldn't be open 
open uh, to a deal if they could get at least one of these Americans home. And clearly, that is the situation that they were faced with here. So we're obviously looking to learn more about, you know, those conversations with the Russians um, if they were simply saying that, you know, now or never in terms of getting Brittany Griner home. I also think it's worth to note that there will be an incredible amount of scrutiny on this deal because Victor Boot is not just an infamous arms trafficker, but he is convicted serving a 25-year prison sentence in part for conspiring to kill Americans. This is a really incredibly bad person. He committed extremely heinous crimes. And when you compare that to what Brittany Griner did, which was essentially accidentally uh, carry cannabis into Russia when she was playing basketball there and then uh, get detained and sent to prison and sent to a penal colony in Russia, those two things just aren't the same. Um, so there will be some scrutiny on that. But rest assured that we have heard from other uh, U.S. officials. We have heard from Trevor Reed, who was another American wrongfully detained in Russia and was released earlier this year, that the Biden administration should release Victor Boot if it means getting home an American. So yeah. there are going to be folks who are going to say this was something that they had to do and other folks who probably say this wasn't the best deal ever. And Victor Boot, that Russian arms dealer we are, are reporting is that he is back on Russian soil right now. Kylie, stand by. We're going to get back uh, to you in just a moment. Uh, but Brittany Grinder, the WNBA star who was, has been detained in Russia and was at a penal colony, faced nine years there, has been released in a prison swap with Victor Boot, the Russian arms dealer. President Biden, as you see there uh, on the right-hand side of your screen, you see President Biden expected to speak at the White House at any uh, moment now. And one he thing was to briefed, watch. Stand by one second. He was briefed throughout the morning. It was a way to confirmation from Griner back in, in U.S. Uh, custody. Uh, U.S. official is telling, this is from our Phil Mattingly, our chief White House uh, correspondent. Uh, once that happened, Biden spoke with Griner from the Oval Office with Griner's wife, Sherelle, Vice President Harris, as you saw, was on the phone there in those pictures, Secretary mm -hmm. Blinken also on the call. Uh, that was per a second official, Secretary Blinken, as Kylie just alluded to, uh, speaking about this uh, over the weekend question on CBS uh, very directly about Griner and whether or not there was some sort of prison swap uh, in the works and that it could happen soon. Caitlin, did you want to wait? Um, no, I think we should bring in Jonathan Franks. He has been a critical player in so many of these release releases and negotiations. Obviously, Jonathan, you, know, you were a big part of this when it came to Trevor Reed. And that is something, you know, we're talking about Paul Whelan and the difficult decisions yeah. that a president has to make when it comes to a prisoner swap with Victor Boot and what this looks like. You know experience of what these negotiations are like behind the scenes firsthand, how delicate, how sensitive they are. What can you tell us about, you know, your take on the fact that Brittany Griner is now coming home, something that is major news for her family and for the United States, but also the fact that Paul Whelan is not from our understanding? Well, good morning, Caitlin. Thanks for having me. Congrats on the new show. I think I'm at a place uh, where I am overjoyed for Sherelle Griner, who I think is an incredibly impressive person whom I would never want to go up against in a courtroom. Um, but at the same time, um, I'm, I'm sick to my stomach that the Whelans have been left behind again. This is at least the third time in two presidencies. And I guess I wonder about the wisdom of putting a bunch of celebratory photos on Twitter when you just left, you know, a Marine behind for the second time. Five minutes. I was, uh, I was struck, and thank you for joining us, given your expertise on this. We really appreciate it. I was really struck by, you know, a lot of folks in your position and a lot of folks um, 
uh, for example, Lee, Lee Walonsky, who was on the former National Security Council in the Clinton administration, said there's a real risk here, right? And this was the Biden administration moving forward, not necessarily in tandem with what, you know, the Justice Department would do and what American policy often is. And he says the risk when, when something like this happens is that it can incentivize foreign powers to grab Americans off the street and, you know, throw them in jail to have leverage, right? Um, but the Biden administration was clear they were going to do this. They, think- they wanted to do this. Can you speak to, to how, you, how you weigh those two things, right? I don't know how to weigh them properly because I've never been a government official doing it. But I will say I've talked to a ton of experts on this. There's absolutely no empirical evidence whatsoever that making these deals uh, increases hostage taking. I think what is really um, what increases hostage taking is our stubborn unwillingness to impose any costs on the hostage takers. And in order to stop this problem, we've got to cause pain for the people that are doing it and those they love. So listen, here's a, I just want to report that what we're hearing from our sources um, at the White House and our sources in Washington, uh, and I quote here, and perhaps you can, you can weigh in on this as well. It says, this is a quote, this was the only deal that we could make right now, according to a senior administration official. President Joe Biden was personally involved uh, and in constant touch and his team with a deal on this. And they said that what they were trying to do was give the green light to personally execute this trade. They said that this was the right deal to to make at this time, but notably uh, that the deal would only be, this was the only one that we could do, the only one that we can make. So maybe people are wondering why not Paul Whelan, you know, why this particular issue? They thought that this was the right one at this time. Do you agree with that? Um, I don't know if it's the right one. It is entirely possible that this is the only deal that they could get, and in which case they had a moral obligation to do it. But at the same time, you know, you sit and you look at Paul Whelan having been there, what, 14-something hundred days and in bad health in and out of the hospital, and we didn't get him, right? It is possible that it was impossible to get him this time. But I guess that doesn't really – it's cold comfort for the Whelan family, and I still just feel sick to my stomach while being absolutely thrilled for Brittany Griner because, as you know, Don, I was on your other show frequently. uh, I've been terribly worried about her. Yeah. I wonder if this is maybe some hope for Paul Whelan, though, I maybe hope for so. his family. Yeah. I hope so. I sure hope so. And I think you've got to remember what the Russian propaganda on Paul Whelan is, is that he's almost like the greatest spy of all time. So that may complicate the negotiations. I don't know. I wasn't a part of them. But um, I know, you know, the reeds are heartbroken this morning as well that Paul is not back. Um, and, you know, we're just we're all praying for the Whelans and just absolutely overjoyed for the Griners. Yeah, yeah and so. we know, you know, when it comes to Paul Whelan, I, we do expect President Biden will have to address that. He'll get asked about that when he speaks to reporters about Brittany Griner's release. Um, let's also bring in Nick Payton Walsh. Nick, you know, you interviewed Victor Boot inside prison. And these are tough decisions for any U.S. president to make. Biden was asked about this when Trevor Reed was released Tell us more about Victor Boot, who, you know, had this nickname Merchant of Death. He was this notorious arms dealer who was convicted. And this obviously is going to involve commuting his sentence. Yeah, certainly. Look, there's an extraordinary disparity between all the denials from Moscow about how this man is not one of the largest arms dealers in history, particularly in the 90s, and the massive efforts they've put in over decades now to try and get him back to Russia. A lot of this feeds into his activities in the 90s. I've seen videos of him with notorious figures in Africa, and there's been a weight of evidence accusing him of being one of the most significant figures trading arms around conflicts in the 90s. 
done in the early 2000s, all of which he has denied. But still, we've seen this persistent bid for Russia to provide him legal aid to keep him out of American hands. The original sting that caught him in Bangkok was, in fact, DEA agents pretending to be Colombian rebels, asking him if he would sell them weapons that could potentially be used to harm Americans. That's what got him arrested in Thailand and eventually, after a long legal struggle, extradited to the United States. The major theory about Victor Boot is perhaps he knows people close to Vladimir Putin in his time in Africa, when maybe they served in Africa too, and that maybe the Americans wanted to put pressure on him for better information, or maybe too they wanted a broader sense of global justice about the uh, arms dealing that he's been accused of proliferating across conflicts around the world. Here's more what we know about him. He's the Lord of War, according to this fictional movie starring Nicolas Cage. See what you like about warlords and dictators. They always pay their bills on time. Or the Merchant of Death, per a book about his alleged life. But despite much evidence, Victor Boot has always denied being one of the biggest arms dealers of the 90s, fueling civil wars and bolstering Moscow's interests. Yet he still never really wanted to be a nobody. Why do the Americans want you so badly? Go and ask them. Go and ask them. Mr. Boot, Mr. Boot, good morning. He gave me his last interview in a Thai jail 13 years ago when he denied the worst charges against him. This is a lie and just bullshit. And I never supplied arms as such uh, at all, and especially never had any deal with Al Qaeda. In the noisy, packed visiting area, as he sat behind the glass, the bit I remember most was his mother interrupting. And that he admitted he had worked for the Russian government. I don't want you to say now this or that. Have you ever worked for the Russian government? Sometimes, yeah, we did different. In the end, he was not superhuman and arrested in Thailand after a US sting operation. And while his decades of life in the shadows had left him full of faced, he was always just a pilot courier, he insisted, even as he was led into this Bangkok courtroom. Uh, today, in Manhattan federal court, accused arm dealer Victor Boot begins to face American justice. The US sting was complex over many months and countries, catching him offering weapons to US agents pretending to be Colombian terrorists. He was eventually extradited to face a New York trial for conspiring to kill Americans. It saw him sentenced to 25 years in prison in a medium security facility in Illinois. There, he told me in emails he was in good spirits, brushing up on his many languages, and in 2019, very glad when his wife and daughter visited. But he was slowly edging towards the end of his sentence, perhaps a reason his role in a swap was more appealing. But the biggest mystery about Boot was why the US wanted him so fiercely. Yes, he had allegedly dealt arms to a lot of bad people across Africa and the 90s, but that was known and exposed. Observers searched for another weightier reason and wondered if he had served alongside any Kremlin insiders in his long past overseas. That remains a huge question mark.
Now, I spent a lot of time talking to Boot to get him to agree to an on-camera interview all those years ago. And I have to say, it's remarkable to say this about somebody who's accused of such diabolical acts. But this is a very intelligent, very charming man with a long list of historical figures globally that he's had personal relationships with. So clearly somebody who was a big player to some degree, even though he says he was just a businessman with a lot of aircraft and somebody of enormous value to the Russian government, the exact reason for which still a secret. All yeah. Right. And of course, remember one of the charges, as you noted there, Nick, is he was convicted on in attempting to kill Americans. Yeah, that's right. That's right. All right. Uh, thank you very much for that. I want to bring in now CNN's Van Jones. Van, we just want to, because people may just be waking up and mm -hmm. tuning in to this. WNBA star Brittany Griner um, on a plane back to the United States, coming free, coming home. Um, the, this exchange, we're told, wait, was, uh, happened at the Abu Dhabi airport. You see there on your screen the podium at the White House. Uh, the president expected to speak, supposed to start at 8.30. He's a little bit late, but he's going to speak. Um, and we're told that there are maybe some family members there. Yeah. Um, the president and the vice president on the call when this happened and making this decision. What do you make of this? This is huge. This is huge. First of all, uh, that's a decade-defining image. Uh, when you saw uh, her wife sitting there, Kamala Harris is there, the president's there, such a human image. And yet it just shows uh, this president got it done. Uh, he cared enough about this individual person to get her home. It was shocking. For the, I think for young Americans to see an icon like that yeah. snatched, locked up, uh, treated like garbage. Uh, and, and she was never, nine years, 10 years for bringing some cannabis oil. Medical, was, medically medical, prescribed. Medically prescribed. So that, these are decade-defining images. I guarantee you there are going to be young people 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now who will remember this moment because she is an icon. And uh, it's, it's, it's really, really extraordinary. And people are going to talk about, oh, well, this other guy, he's so terrible. You know what? There's a lot of terrible people in the world. There's a lot of terrible people in Russia. But what you don't have and what you can't allow to happen is to have a black female icon mm -hmm. treated like garbage and America do nothing about it. Mm -hmm. Something was done about it and people are going to be proud about that. Yeah. We got a two-minute warning from the White House. So expect the president expected to step up to that podium uh, in just about two minutes now. So hey, you, you, know, you know, also, give credit to black women. Black women rallied for this, right. fought for this. And, and again, some of the male athletes were getting jammed up. If this was LeBron James, you guys would be shutting down everything. And you know what? The, the male athletes said, you are correct. But this was a galvanized grassroots movement led by black women that brought in, the, finally, the White House, the U.S. government, to rescue a sister from injustice. And, you know, you, you think about... Other black women who you've seen in uh, you know, handcuffs, Angela Davis, like those images of black women in handcuffs emerging triumphant. That's this today. A black woman who was chained, shackled, mistreated, emerging triumphant. And when she lands today, it's going to have the eyes of planet Earth on her. You're reading my mind. So what happens? What does this mean in terms of the, uh, the elevating... Right. Probably the WNBA and attention, okay. elevating attention to black women, elevating attention to, you know, people who are held. It, it is it's, enormous. It's, the it's, implications. It's, 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 there's going to be a cultural shockwave that goes out because, first of all, she never has to touch another basketball. She will be an icon in this country for the rest of her life. But if she does go, go, go back into the basketball court, mm -hmm. the WNBA goes through the roof. And so uh, this, I think people are waking up. They're rubbing their eyes. What's going on? You will remember this for decades. Yeah, it's huge. And of course, the conditions that she's been living through. The president, president of the United States is entering the room uh, with Brittany Griner's wife and wow. the vice president. And let's listen yeah. to the president. Well, good morning, folks. And it is a good morning. Moments ago, standing together with her wife, Sherelle, uh, in the Oval Office, I spoke with Brittany Griner. 
She's safe. She's on a plane. She's on her way home. After months of being unjustly detained in Russia, held under intolerable circumstances, Brittany will soon be back in the arms of her loved ones, and, uh, and she should have been there all along. This is a day we've worked toward for a long time. We never stopped pushing for her release. It took painstaking and intense negotiations, and I want to thank all the hardworking public servants across my administration who worked tirelessly to secure her release. I also want to thank the UAE for helping us facilitate Brittany's return, because that's where she landed. These past few months have been hell for Brittany and for Charlie and, uh, the, and her entire family and all her teammates back home. People all across the country have learned about Brittany's story, advocated for her release, stood with her through, throughout this terrible ordeal. And I know that support meant a lot to her family. I'm glad to be able to say that Brittany's in good spirits. She, uh, she's relieved to finally be heading home. And the fact remains that she's lost months of her life, experienced a needless trauma, and she deserves space, privacy, and time with her loved ones to recover and heal from her time being wrongfully detained. Brittany is, uh, is an incomparable athlete, a two-time Olympic gold medalist for Team USA. She endured mistreatment in a show, at a, in a show trial in Russia with characteristic grit and incredible dignity. She represents the best America, best about America. It is across the board, everything about her. She wrote to me back in July. She didn't ask for special treatment, even though we've been working on a release from the day one. She requested a simple quote, please don't forget about me and the other American detainees. Please do all you can to bring us home. We never forgot about Brittany. We've not forgotten about Paul Whelan, who's been unjustly detained in Russia for years. This was not a choice of which American to bring home. We brought home Trevor Reed when we had a chance early this year. Sadly, for totally illegitimate reasons, Russia is treating Paul's case differently than Brittany's. And while we have not yet succeeded in securing Paul's release, we are not giving up. We will never give up. We remain in close touch with Paul's family, the Whelan family. And my thoughts and prayers are with them today. They have to have such mixed emotions today. And we'll keep negotiating in good faith for Paul's release. I guarantee that. I say that to the family. I guarantee you. And I urge Russia to do the same to ensure that Paul's health and, you, and humane treatment are maintained until we can be able to bring him home. I don't want any American to sit wrongfully detained in, in one extra day if we can bring that person home. My administration has now brought home dozens of Americans who were wrongfully detained or held hostage abroad, many of whom had been held since before I took office. And today, we also remember the other Americans that are being held hostage and wrongfully detained in Russia or anywhere else in the world. Reuniting these Americans with their loved ones remains a priority a priority for my administration, every person in my administration involved in this. And we're going to continue to work to bring home every American who continues to endure such an injustice. We also want to prevent any more American families from suffering this pain and separation. And I strongly urge, I strongly urge all Americans to take precautions, including reviewing the State Department's travel advisories before they travel overseas which now includes warnings about the risk of being wrongfully detained by a foreign government. Make no mistake about it, this work is not easy. Negotiations are always difficult. There are never any guarantees. 
But it's my job as President of the United States to make the hard calls and protect American citizens everywhere in the world, anywhere in the world. And I'm proud that today we had made one more family whole again. So welcome home, Brittany. And now I'd like to uh, uh, invite Sherelle to say a few words to all. Of course, she's not excited at all about this. Sherelle, it's all yours, kiddo. Congratulations Thank again. You. Thank you. So over the last nine months, you all have been um, so privy to one of the darkest moments of my life. And so today I'm just standing here um, overwhelmed with emotions, but the most important emotion that I have right now is just sincere gratitude um, for President Biden and his entire administration. Um, he just mentioned this work is not easy and it has not been. There's been so many hands involved. And so I'd like to take a moment to just specifically mention a few. Uh, Vice President Harris, Secretary Blinken, Jake Sullivan, Joss Geltzer from the National Security Council, Roger Cartson and Fletcher Schoen from the Hostage Envoys Office. Um, a special thank you to Governor Richardson and Mickey, um, the Mercury Players, the WNB, PA for your advocacy. And also, um, you guys may not know this, but um, my family has been tremendously supported by the Washington um, agency, BG's agent, um, Lindsay Colas. It's just been amazing for me and my family throughout this process. So um, today my family is whole, but as you all are aware, there's so many other families who are not whole. And so BG's not here to say this, but I will gladly speak on her behalf and say that BG and I will remain committed to the work of getting every American home, including Paul, whose family is in our hearts today as we celebrate BG being home. We do understand that there are still people out here who are enduring what I endured the last nine months of missing tremendously their loved ones. So thank you everybody for your support. Um, and today it's just a happy day for me and my family. So um, I'm gonna smile right now. <laughs> um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you all very much. <laughs> Mr. Mr. President, what has Russia gotten in return for this prisoner? What do you say to the Whalen family who says this is a catastrophe for Paul, Mr. President? We're speaking to that. How soon will he be home? All right, the president getting bombarded with questions there uh, at the end of that press conference. But there you heard the president of the United States, Brittany Griner's uh, wife and the vice president of the United States. And this is a, a moment that we'll all remember, as Van Jones just, Jones just alluded to. Uh, it is a happy moment for the United States. The president started by thanking everyone involved uh, for their hard work, the UAE. Of course, he thanked the wife there. And he said, it was important, and Poppy pointed this out, that Brittany Griner is in uh, good spirits. He asked to give her space and time, mm -hmm. mentioning her two-time uh, Olympic gold medal wins. Um, and he said that um, he wrote her back in July. She wrote him, excuse me, back in July, asking for, for help with her, but also for others who had been detained uh, as well. And he said it wasn't a choice about what American to bring home, that this was the right move uh, at this time. Mentioning Paul Whelan uh, as well, saying that the United States will never give up. And as the president of the United States, it was his job to secure bringing home people who were um, unlawfully detained. It was a priority for the United States um, and that he would do that. But I want to just finish up before I bring in uh, Abby Phillip here, because Brittany Griner's wife, Sherelle, was there speaking. She said that Americans, people around the world witnessed 
of them in the darkest moments of their life. And she said, this has not been easy. She thanked the president. She thanked Tony Blinken. She thanked Jake Sullivan. And she said, today my family is whole and BG and I will remain committed to bringing other people home as well. Abby Phillip uh, has been in contact and interviewed um, the uh, wife of Brittany Griner and speaking, listen, she is happy. This is an amazing moment for her. So talk to us about your conversations and what you noticed as this was happening as she was speaking there at the White House. Yeah, I mean, uh, I've spoken to Sherelle uh, many times over the last several months, and uh, obviously she's overjoyed by this moment. It's been incredibly difficult. And for the reasons that you can imagine, for all of these families, this type of situation is unbearable. Uh, but in this case, uh, it was clear to Sherelle, as uh, she told me, that that her wife was being used as a political pawn. I think she feared uh, for what would happen to a black lesbian woman in Russia. Uh, she feared what would happen in the context of the, the Ukraine war, how Russia could seek to use Brittany Griner to, to, uh, to meet other ends uh, in the global sort of conflicts that were unfolding. And so it's a huge relief. But as you can see there, uh, there is a lot of, uh, I think, on the other side of it, uh, you know, I, I, guilt is probably not the best word, but a, a feeling of sadness for the other families, especially for the Whelan family, who she's gotten to know over these last few months. When I first met Sherelle, it was actually in a, a setting where she was being really embraced by this community of families of wrongfully detained Americans who basically took her under the wing. And the first thing that they told her was that she needed to uh, continue to pressure as loudly as possible the Biden administration, asking for a face-to-face -face meeting with President Biden, which she did publicly until in, in, in her interview with me until she got that meeting. And that public pressure, a lot of people around these issues have told me, ha have really changed the paradigm around wrongfully detained Americans uh, around the world. It's really put it front and center. It used to be that uh, administrations wanted to deal with these issues totally in private. But I think the Griner uh, family, uh, Sherelle Griner and uh, her agents and the WNBA, they took a different tactic, making this basically front page news for months and months and months. And I think that they believe that that made a huge difference here, making it impossible, really, for President Biden to do anything else but to make this a top priority. Mm -hmm. Abby, thanks for that. I appreciate it. And so much of this had to do with that pressure on the White House that came from these families. It's been a big aspect of this. It was with Trevor Reed's family. That was a huge, they came out in front of the White House. It was pouring raining. I remember that day. And they stood out there because they wanted the attention. Can I ask House. you that? Because you're the chief White House correspondent. You were in those rooms asking those questions when these things happened. What struck you about what we just heard from the president? I think he really wanted to talk about what a happy moment this is, and that is incredibly uh, a big focus here of what this means. Sheryl Griner said, you know, these have been the darkest moments of my entire life where they couldn't speak, they couldn't talk to her, but also saying, you know, Paul Whelan's family, we hear you, and saying he believed, we'll wait to learn more about what officials say when they brief reporters on this, what he said were totally illegitimate reasons that Russia uh, is not bringing, is not releasing Paul Whelan at this time. MJ Lee, you're at the White House. You know, you were watching these remarks from President Biden. And it was that moment there at the end when Kristen Welker shouted out, you know, the timeline. And he said he believes that Brittany Griner will be back inside the United States within the next 24 hours. Obviously, she'll have to undergo a medical evaluation, big things that will have to happen to her in the aftermath. But 
uh, President Biden making clear what a monumental moment this is. Absolutely. You know, this speech was first and foremost celebratory, uh, talking about how Griner has been through hell, the president said, over the last few months. And now she is able to be reunited uh, with her family. And when he let uh, Sherelle Griner take the podium, even before she was able to say any word, she literally let out a huge sigh of relief. And she said, I am just so overcome with emotion. But I think uh, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, he made sure that the speech was also in large part about addressing Paul Whelan. Uh, he said, we have not forgotten about him. We are not giving up and we are going to keep negotiating in good faith. And I just want to give you a little bit of our uh, reporting from this morning on sort of the backstory of why Paul Whelan wasn't included in this deal. A U.S. official telling me that they, of course, have been trying for months to make sure that Brittany Griner and Paul Whelan were both a part of this deal. Uh, this is what they ultimately wanted. But the Russians made clear uh, as we uh, got into the recent days that they were only willing to negotiate for Griner, that they essentially treated the two cases very separately based on the different things that each person was accused of. Now, the U.S. administration kept pushing for Whelan to be a part of this deal, but ultimately they got to a point where the Russians made it so clear that he could not be a part of this deal, that they were only willing to give up Britney uh, Griner. And so they ultimately had to make the decision to accept this deal. Uh, this official telling me, quote, it was a choice to get Griner or nothing. And a different senior administration official told me this morning, this was the only deal we could make right now. So I think the question now is, look, if Victor Boot wasn't enough for Paul Whelan, what is going to be enough? That is going to be uh, the problem and the discussion uh, that is certainly already ongoing in the administration, because obviously uh, they wanted both of these people. They were not able to get both. And we heard directly again from the president emphasizing uh, repeatedly that it is a top priority for him now to turn his attention to Whelan and getting him out of Russia. Absolutely. MJ, thank you very, very much for all that reporting and especially that context at the end, because now we're going to bring in David Whelan. He is Paul's brother. David, good morning to you. Uh, thank you for being here. Just let's begin with your, your reaction to the news. It's great news. Uh, anytime an American comes home is, uh, is yeah. wonderful news. I'm, I'm so glad for Brittany and for Sherelle. It's a, it's, it's a wonderful day. Paul has been held for four years. And the last I read and heard from you about a week ago, he was in a Russian hospital. Um, the president said he's talked to you, as I understand, yesterday. Can you share what you can with us in terms of this administration's efforts to get your brother home? Someone from the White House let us know, which was very kind. Uh, it, it's hard to process this in real time, which is what we had to do last April when Paul was left behind before and uh, Trevor Reed came home. And uh, it's a great day for the families of the wrongfully detained, and, and we feel wonderful for them. Um, but we do we do worry about what's uh, what's in Paul's future. I think it's become clear that the U.S. doesn't have any concessions that the Russian government wants for Paul, and uh, so I'm not really sure I'm not really sure what the future holds. Yeah, listen, I, I imagine it is a bittersweet. I don't know if that's a right term because you're happy for Brittany Griner's family for her wife and for all involved. You said it's a good day for people who are wrongfully detained, but then your, your brother is still there. So how do you navigate that? What, what do you think moving forward your conversations with the administration and those who are involved in trying to get your brother home? Where does that go from here? It's the same thing we've been doing every day for the last, what, 440 days. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I, we heard the news yesterday. I prepared my media statement to go out this morning and 
we were back to back to work, uh, you know, checking Russian media, looking for uh, options that we could send on to the U.S. government suggestions. Uh, but really, you know, it's it's a matter of helping Paul to survive until and if the U.S. government is able to find a concession that the Russian government wants. And uh, um, it, it's not magic. It's just a ton of work. And David, you heard the president say, for reasons he says are totally illegitimate, Russia is not treating the release of your brother the same as Brittany Griner. Did anyone from the administration tell you what they believe those reasons are? It's not clear to me uh, what it is. It's probably something to do with parity. Uh, Russians are, well, I shouldn't say Russians. The Kremlin is particularly focused, <clears throat> excuse me, on parity, on getting e equal things. And so if they have labeled Paul as a spy, it may be that they're waiting until the U.S. Uh, government captures a spy and can and offer that as a, as, a, as a trade. That's the only thing I can imagine. So, um, but it's hard to know. And, and it's clear that whatever it is, the U.S. government doesn't currently have it. You, um, you were alerted before, right? How soon were you alerted about this? It was really gracious of the White House. Uh, they let us know yesterday <clears throat> because it's, it's hard to process all of this. Uh, last time, you know, I was processing it uh, on media an hour after we, we had learned, and it's right. very difficult to, to go through those emotions. Mm. We are all thinking about you. We don't know what it's like to be in your shoes, but you are in our hearts this morning. David, thank you. Thank you very thank much, you. David. Uh, you see, uh, CNN's Van Jones is sitting. Van, you've been watching all of this and yeah. absorbing it, and we've just sort of looking at each other from yeah. across the desk here, just sort of taking in the moment. Um, this is one of those moments you and I cover a lot of breaking news, a lot of big stories. This, we will remember this moment. Yeah, and, and um, I, I think that there's, you can see there's this kind of fraternity or sorority of pain. Even when Sherelle, the wife, steps forward, she's talking about Whelan. Mm -hmm. She's not just talking about herself. I mean, first of all, what a class act. She thanked everybody. Mm -hmm. I mean, she went through a list of everybody who's ever helped. Class act, maintains that poise. But she wouldn't leave that microphone without talking about the other people left behind. There's a fraternity and sorority of people who are, have loved ones who are being held in horrible conditions. We don't think about them every day. They think about them every minute. And that solidarity has not been broken. Uh, you know, I think that uh, 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 his brother, also class act. The yeah. first thing he says yeah. is, I'm happy for the other family. You can see the heartbreak. You can see the pain. His brother has been left behind repeatedly, but he still sticks up for the one who's coming home. Mm -hmm. So we need to be like that mm -hmm. as, as a country. If they can stand together in this much pain, we should, we should be doing the same thing. But I, you know, t today is gonna be a joyful moment for all the pain, for all the criticisms, a joyful moment for the black women who led a movement to get one of their sisters home. This was a grassroots movement. They had to push to get male athletes, to get us to take, to take it seriously, but they have triumphed. And here's the deal. If you can bring one home, you can bring two home. So I don't see this as a bad sign for Paul Whelan. Mm. I think it's a good sign for what Americans can do when we stand together. If I, would be, I think I would be remiss if we did not mention also the importance this plays for the LGBTQ community. Yes, as we've been talking about black women, this is big. So this is for the LGBTQ community. Glad releasing a statement, obviously, just I'm summarizing here that they're happy and it shows the, the um, struggles and the danger that members of the LGBT community face around the world. But when you look at what is happening with the LGBT community specifically, here um, in the United States. Um, what does this say? Does, what, does this bring attention to that? And it shows us, hey, look, we're all Americans. Listen, uh, Brittany Griner represents everything in this country. Uh, she's female, she's LGBTQ, she's black, and she's extraordinary. She's excellent. She's overcome. 
She's, a, she's an icon. She's done everything you can do in her sport and more. And yet she still wasn't safe. She was snatched off of a plane and treated like, like trash. And we didn't let it stand. Uh, Americans came together. And I think that Biden uh, and Kamala Harris, uh, this is one of the things that they're going to be, I think, the most proud of. Uh, I think Americans can stand together on this one. Uh, but where we say to right now, when she comes off that plane, when she walks off that plane, when her wife hugs her, when that moment happens, that is going to be decade defining. People will remember that. And it should show us what we can do when we stand together. It can show us what we can do when we don't give up on people. We give up on too many people. We give up on each other in politics all the time. We give up on our kids. We give up on our relatives. You're blocking people on Facebook and Twitter. We get so mad and we let go of each other's hands. You grab hold of each other and look what happens. And her life will never be the same again. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, uh, if she ever touches another basketball on the court, the whole world will watch. We'll be watching. And that will transform women's sports. Fan, thank you. Such I'm glad moment. you were here with us. Yeah. Thank such you. important perspective on such big news. Seen in special coverage of this monumental moment, the release of Brittany Griner, who is now on her way back to the United States, continues right now. That's it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.